We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know. Welcome back to the podcast, Gator Nation. Well, that was a wild one. I'm Alan Williams. I'm here with James DiVergilio. Man, so much to talk about from this Tennessee game. I don't think I anticipated that crazy of a game, but it was amazing to watch, even though the Gators did not come out with a win. James, you were there. How are you feeling over there, buddy? Man, I feel I feel fine. I mean, Florida-Tennessee is a crazy game. There was so much stuff to break down. I spent the entire car ride home watching you know, NFL Sunday ticket on my phone and then doing film review, alternating between those two tasks, which was rather efficient. But this game just raised a lot of questions uh, in, in a way that is, is good and beneficial and then fun. This, this podcast today is a fun one, even though we lost, which sucks, and we'll talk more about that. But doing this for you and I, Alan, you want to answer big questions. You want to be able to help explain what's happening. Is this good or is this bad? And this was not a game that did not give us a lot of data, right? We have a lot of data now to look at for and, sure. and start kind of saying, okay, here's another data point. This is what this may or may not mean. Let's keep watching. And that's the fun of a football season, even though Florida's not where any of us want them to be. Uh, this season, this year one in a new regime is largely about looking at how the program should be transforming from game one to game 12 or game 13. And we're just you know still really early on in quarter one, if you will, of this process. Yeah, so much to talk about. Why don't you talk about some of our patrons, though, first? We'll do it. And as always, if you like the content on this show, you can follow us on social media. You can sub to our YouTube channel, where we bring you film breakdowns each and every week. And you can become a patron on Patreon, where you too can drop us a dono, supporting the show and our efforts to bring you this content each and every week. As always, a shout-out to our producer, B-Red. He played for the Gators, went to North Carolina, ran some track there. He's back in Florida. And Carly, the commissioner, who's also from the great state of Florida, but currently out in Colorado, where she does the video editing for our YouTube channel. And a reminder, the LSU 
uh, GNFP weekend, the meet and greet, the the chill, the, the hangout, the vibes will be going down Friday night at First Mag, October 14th. That is Friday night at First Mag, 6 to 8 p.m. The link is on every social post we make. You do need to RSVP, but it is free. So if you have not RSVP'd yet and you plan on being there, please RSVP. In theory, the event can fill up. We can also just keep increasing the size, but we need your RSVP to know how much space we will need. All right. Alan, we have some new patrons. Always great to welcome them to the GNFP patron family. Uh, we have Jeremy Lee, Nick Shields, and Dono Dan. Dono Dan McLeod coming in hot. What a great name. He might be in contention for I love it. the best name, Dono Dan. <laughs> coming in with a small Dono for all three of them, and then a level up from an old small to a new small. If you don't know what that means, just hop on the Patreon site and you can see. But there's a level up from Wade Bayless. And the then, wild one himself, Wade. Yeah, What's up, buddy? Not bad, right? Great level up there. Uh, we have a level up from Joel McCann to a large dono, which is glorious. Thanks, Joel. And then Donnie Thomas coming in hot and new at a large dono. And then a XXL dono from Justin. Uh, thanks, Justin, who was writing to us on Twitter for your support and your patronage. And then still sitting on the throne is Guy Tumbleson, who's proceeded over a wild set of Indeed. circumstances here as the king of the GNFP. Of course, if you want to be king, all you have to do is just outdo or queen. Guy. Yeah, or queen, or yeah, exactly. It's or or if you want to be like a you know a a prince or whatever you decide you want to be. If you're you know <laughs> you want your dad to give you a dono and you're like a 15 year old and you're a prince, fine. You can be the prince of the GNFP. <laughs> Regardless of what you do, that is you wind up contributing the most via a dono. It's a blind bidding process. No one knows how much anyone is contributing. You just get a notice that says, congratulations, you're the king. All right, with that being said, Alan, read off some of our dono legends, as you do so well every oh. single week. And this never gets tiresome for me. I just It's like a it's rhythmic. It's joy, right? It's like a little, yeah, it's just a little, it's like a start. It's like get get the, it's like the beat that Matthew McConaughey does in Wolf of Wall Street when he just, you know, <laughs> that's what this is like for me. It's like now it's time to go. It's yeah. a little liturgy here for us. Uh -huh. All right. Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, The Big Homie, Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Sashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Remery, Craig Scarado. All right. As we mentioned, of course, the Gators did lose this game 38-33. Make it very close at the end. Actually have a chance to win, which is crazy considering how this game went. Uh, our keys to the game were interesting here. Let's start with you on offense. Uh, the offense being... Passing yards. Passing yards, excuse me. 200 mm -hmm. yards. Yeah, which we uh, obviously yeah, eclipsed. Got there. Yeah, 453 or so, right? So <laughs> layup mode there. Yes, far exceeded our expectations. But the, the other key to yeah. this is what's about to happen. Defense under 100 yards rushing, I believe. Hinden Hooker had over 100 yards just by himself. He did, and I think the reality is if Florida had achieved that on defense, Florida wins this football game. I think that's true. Uh, you, you could not allow them to run the football because of what they posed in the passing game. And if you if you let them do both, then what happens is what happened on Saturday to Florida and you just have no chance of stopping them. All right. My thoughts were AR, no interceptions. This largely happened. They threw one in the last play. Yeah. Of the game, not, but that's an inconsequential yeah. one. So he achieved that. Uh, and then on defense for them to have two picks and three sacks, n no picks, but two turnovers and three sacks. Now 
that didn't really tell the story. I was thinking more how well would they be able to disrupt the passing game. Not really much at all. Came close a few times, but didn't really have the impact that thought they might have considering those statistics. And there is a difference between turnovers, and I think that's important right. to, to make that distinction. As a quarterback, if you're throwing interceptions, you feel bad. When your team is fumbling, it's no big deal. It's like, oh, we gained 25 yards and fumbled? Not a problem. We're, we're comfortable. We'll, we'll get them next time. And so I think that was a good distinction there. Although we had two turnovers, we did not interfere with their passing game hardly at all. Yeah, or any kind of production there. Um, so interesting score predictions. We were both fairly close to Tennessee here. Um, you picked 30-20. I picked 35-13. The Gator offense was obviously more productive than we thought they would be by a large margin, um, even though that last touchdown was, you know, a little bit of a garbage time, except for got you a chance to win the game. Except when you get the on, it's funny how when you get the onside kick, it's no longer garbage it's time. It's no longer garbage right? time. It's not garbage time when you get the onside kick. Okay. There have been a lot of crazy UF Tennessee games we talked about at the top. I, I was talking about, was this the wildest one we've ever seen? I don't think it quite gets there considering some of the um, big UF wins, the heave to cleave, you know, the Callaway touchdown, um, Jabbar Gaffney. There's a, a lot of crazy ones, but I think emotionally this was a, was up there for Tennessee because of the win for them to get over the Florida hump and maybe just an, an intensity to this game that there hasn't been sometimes, even some of those games that had a wild finish, there wasn't necessarily the intensity that this game had. It felt like. Yeah, it felt like, and you're a big UFC fan, it felt like a, a, a fight between two up-and-coming fighters. Neither fighter is is prodigious or tabbed to be the next Hall of Famer, but they have potential to become something great. They also may just wash out and become a gatekeeper or just be gone entirely. It's it's hard to know where they're going to be, but that makes for very entertaining theater. Right, And they were exchanging blows. A lot of them were self-inflicted and not necessarily pretty, but it was very entertaining. It was a wide-open, electric, you know, play-filled game. And it was indeed wild. I think if Florida completes a pass to end the game to win, probably the wildest game we've seen. The wildest, yeah. Uh, for sure. Yeah, I think because of that, you know, for me, the Jabbar Gaffney game is still the one. I was there when that happened. That stadium was full of venom and rage and anger, and it meant a lot. It was an important game for Florida uh, at the time, and Tennessee just, that was, you know, the game itself probably wasn't quite as wild, but to your point, I think it's hard to define the wildest game because this this rivalry is filled with all sorts of zany, wild moments, whether it's Dallas Baker slapping somebody, or it's, you know, you can go on and on. There's just Late so many things, goal, yeah. right? It's so many chapters in this book. And this was just the latest one. And this is why I love this rivalry. It's why I love Tennessee fans. It's why I love the emotion they bring. I just love everything about this game. And it it did not deliver for Florida from the standpoint that we didn't win. Uh, but it did deliver in that I think if you're a neutral fan and you watch that game, the passion of the SEC is on display. My cousin was with me there in person. There were 14 of us that went. He went to Maryland. And he's been to Florida games in the swamp. And he just couldn't stop going on and on about how the SEC is just so unreal. He's been to, you know, top games at Ohio State versus Michigan when they were two versus three. And nothing compares to the pageantry of the SEC and just how much it means to the communities. And road trips are great for that. So wild game, fun environment, um, you know, really all in all, super sucky loss. Never want to lose to Tennessee, but 16 wins in 18 years, year one for our coach, year two for theirs. We have issues, not the worst thing. 
especially the way it finished. For sure. I, I came away largely encouraged by Florida's effort in this game. Um, despite the fact that they could not slow Tennessee down at all. But yeah, you started talking about Neyland. What was it like inside the stadium during the game? It was great. So pregame walking around my past experience, this is my fifth time there, where that, you know, if they're really good, they they talk a lot of trash beforehand. Yeah. Uh, uh, fans of any age. In this case, really only the only the the students or really more of the Greek life was was engaging in trash talk. And even then it was pretty you know, their kind of standard is like F Florida is their standard line. But even then it's like this weird joke. It doesn't feel venomous. It's like they're doing it and that's like their standard line. But you don't feel like it's a threatening thing. You can laugh about it. You can have great conversations as we did with so many Tennessee fans. But once the game kicked off, they were hungry for this win. They also expected to win. So the tickets were really, really highly priced. And a lot of Tennessee fans were were trying to get to this game because they wanted to be there when Tennessee beat Florida because they can hear all their friends and family talking about how many years it's been since they win and how many years before that it's been since they win this kind of game. Uh, so that set the stage, I think, for for a really great home atmosphere there. And we had a great moment where I was with some friends and we were we were on the upper concourse, we're down the lower concourse, and Tennessee Stadium, if you've never been, is it's like a carnival stadium. It's like a huge, big, sort of outdated theater and nothing fits the number of people that fit there so to get to the top level you have to like walk all the way through the bowels of the stadium if you come on the wrong side and it's it's just tiny you can't get through so the usher plays a nice little trick on my friend and tells us that rather than going around and up the outside we should just walk up through the inner bowl which is right through the fraternity sections (laughs) which wound up being the highlight of most of our trips i have little peyton with me and I'm walking up the stairs. It's like 50 rows of stairs at Ben Hill, basically. And you're just getting double birded at the Gators, Gator chomped in your face, like all this stuff. But it was it was great. People can't figure out why I'm holding this little Tennessee football player. Right? Yeah. I mean, no one knows what's happening. But it was totem. like this walk of like, you just like, you just felt the energy pregame. So they were fired up. They wanted it. And then to your point, Alan, as the game went on, when it was 38-21, that was maybe the best vibes those fans have had since they won a national title. I mean, they were just beaming. They're taking videos of each other. They're taking videos of the Florida fans and themselves to send to their friends. I mean, it was like a party atmosphere. The entire stadium is gator chomping, which to me was like, this is great. This is great. You guys are nice gator chomp here, right? I mean, what are you going to do with that? It was just good times USA. The vibes were high. It was loud. They were just having a blast. And it was like, I don't even want to walk home through this. This is not going to be super enjoyable. But then the rest of the game happened. And what was remarkable was how no Tennessee fans were going to leave that game. And their celebratory, this is amazing mood, went to absolute fear of the highest level. But it wasn't, it wasn't when Florida got the onside kick at the end. It was when Florida scored at 38-27, didn't get the two. The stadium was already tensing because they've still, yeah, they've seen some bad stuff as Tennessee fans, right? Bad. Bad stuff. And then when they had the false start to make it third and six, the stadium was unbelievably tense, despite the fact that we're down 11 and time is running out. Then when they convert that first down, it kind of relaxes some. And it's still tense. When they don't get the fourth down, it was like you would have thought we were down one. Like the stadium was not in a good place. People were not in a good place. And then we score. We don't get that two-point conversion. They feel better. Then we get the onside kick and unbelievable fear has swept the entire stadium. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like that before, but you could just sense that this was maybe, maybe the end of like 
Tennessee football as we knew it if they lost that game. Like the entire stadium might have just imploded from the energy those fans were going to bring if they lost that game. And they could feel a loss. And then we complete that first down pass. Then unfortunately, we don't complete the, the next pass. Oh, right? man. And then the Hail Mary falls short and they win. But here's the wild thing. The game is over and it was so subdued. Like the players were hyped, but the fans... They were not they in the just same been through the mindset. Ringer. No, like it felt good for them. They exercised some demons, but on Vol Radio after the game and walking around the streets and in the bowels of the stadium, like people were trying to get that it's great to be a Tennessee Vol chant going. It wasn't really sticking. Like they were just sort of shell-shocked because the party they thought they were going to have didn't really materialize. And a lot of what I heard and a lot of what the radio guys said was like, hey, a win's a win. This feels good. At 38-21, it felt amazing. At 38-33, it doesn't feel good. And there was a palpable sort of like, if we couldn't really handle them this year, what's going to happen in the future? Yeah. And that's what was settling in. And that was real. And that was existing in the postgame. It was existing on the streets. It was not the kind of atmosphere they wanted to have. So in some way, being there, it felt like a win. It really moderated, I think, any Gators fans mood there if you stayed until the end because it it was not what they wanted. And that's partially a win when you're in year one and you're not playing for anything anyways. You took something away from them. And you guys all know I love Tennessee and their fans because it just means so much to them. So that that was the experience there. It was a wild ride. It was a great time. It, it was always a great time. But it was nice that we ended on such a high note. And I think for Napier and for Florida fans and for you and I, Alan, if you lose that game 45-21, which it looked like potentially it could have happened that way, this feels very, very different then Florida driving down and then having a chance to literally win the football game changes the entire feeling of what that game could have been like. Yeah. It's funny because it felt like as we were moving the ball, you know, I, I thought, Hey, I like it for the fact that you're giving AR more reps. He needs the practice. They're having success. Let's move the ball. Let's try to keep this thing close. And then all it starts to peek in a little bit. You know, there's this little, chance here you know not much obviously an onside kick when the other team knows it's coming is almost impossible but obviously not impossible so i agree it totally changed the entire vibe i think for both teams for how they'll remember the game but um i was thinking yes what is my main takeaway from this game and you know i said that i'm mostly encouraged right i knew the defense had some flaws some significant flaws but the performance that we got from Anthony Richardson, you know, night and day different than the previous two games. And he looked again like a player who could be an All-American type player. And I don't know if that will be how it will look two weeks from now, but it gave you hope again that that he could be successful, that the coaching staff could be successful. And honestly – felt like it changed the entire atmosphere around the program and the team. It, it was not good coming in to this week because two weeks in a row, he looked lost out there for the most part. And I think that's what I'll remember from this game moving forward. Most likely is his performance and how that changes trajectory and the vibe around the team. Yeah. I think that's a story to follow, right? Is, is this a one-off or is this going to continue? And we'll talk about that in the film analysis, but that that's definitely a takeaway. That is the main takeaway. I think any, any fan, any follower of the program walking outside of that stadium or, or leaving your house or talking with your friends, wherever you watched it, was that, hey, we lost. But the biggest question mark we had was if we lost our if we lost our ceiling level NFL style quarterback to a, a replacement level guy, 
then whatever's happening sub replacement two level maybe is is behind yeah. schedule yeah it becomes very hard to have that big year two jump if your quarterback is not who you thought he was so this went beyond restoring his ceiling level way beyond it in reality it was an unbelievably different performance but it was also the performance alan that all of his previous films suggested he would have done normally so that's why in a way is it a surprise no is it a surprise yes because his play the past two weeks was shocking and this was what was expected and and we'll talk more about that we'll unpack that but that is the main takeaway from this football game and the second takeaway of course is obviously that this defense for florida is ranging on historically bad uh, and could be by the end of the year the worst defense we've ever had which is wildly disappointing because to me it's really down to just a handful of guys and it's it's kind of sickening that this is how poor we are and we'll unpack that on the defensive breakdown but that is a big takeaway obviously drastic things must be undertaken and we'll talk about what this looks like and what should be done and I think what's fairly obvious at this stage of the season for the future of this program but just the really embarrassing is the right word performance for a bunch of athletes on defense. And, and again, most of them probably did just fine. But in general, as a unit, you're, an, you're a team, you're a defense together. Um, Tennessee has a great offense. I love their offense. But that was that that's embarrassing, right? You have to make them earn it. And in, in a lot of ways, Florida just gifted it to them. Um, so does that mean anything for the long run? It's too soon. It's too soon to tell. I myself don't have huge concerns that this is like a sign of things to come. I think it's probably a, a sign of things that are ending more than things to come. But that's probably the second big takeaway: is man, that is a woeful defense out there for sure. And if things don't get fixed on that side of the ball, it could be just a very long season of like frustration for Florida fans and for the team itself. I'm sure. Okay, we're gonna bump something up from coaching decisions to the top here because I think this is the other thing that's on everybody's mind is the choices in, uh, I don't know, game management, all the fourth down decisions, timeout going for two, a lot of conversation. Let's start with the fourth down calls. Um, and we're going to talk, we're not going to get into maybe each of these individually. Um, you can see a lot of that on the film review that is going to go up, um, that James did, but Florida is, Five of six on fourth down. The fact that it faced so many is interesting. Uh, kind of that that were manageable, you know, that you could actually go for it. And it wasn't like fourth and 20 or something like that. But very aggressive from the beginning of the game, from the jump. And in good, you know, situations where you would think you would go for it on fourth down and situations where you probably wouldn't often go for it on fourth down. Uh, for me... I really appreciated this aggression on every level. Now, it didn't work a couple key times, right? Or, or I guess one key time, excuse me. But uh, I loved it. I This was going to be a track meet. I said last week um, when we were talking, or two weeks ago, I guess, when we were talking about the Kentucky, like, should we punt or go for it? You know, I said, if you're playing the Chiefs and you have to score every time, you have to be aggressive from the jump. And this is the, that type of scenario that you couldn't settle for field goals. You couldn't settle for punting when you had a chance. Now, I don't know if you go for every one of these, if you break it down, but uh, the overall mindset of aggressive, we're going to go for it on fourth down. I thought was very warranted in this game and, and necessary if we're going to have a chance to win. I 
I was thrilled in a lot of ways with with what happened in this football game from Billy Napier's perspective because I have I had not been thrilled in many regards we've talked about uh, when it came to some tactical decision making for a guy who prides himself on analytics especially with timeout usage that had been driving me crazy right which we've seen most of the decisions he's made we've talked about the math on them has been a push and it's preference and we talked about uh, the kind of the three triangle thing I like to look at right which is what is the expected value added uh, what is the human element or emotional scenario? And then what's the momentum of the game? And those three things matter. And that's what you mentioned with the Chiefs. And, and this is a great example. Like the meta strategy is one thing. The tactical, the tactical, you know, kind of readout is one thing. And then the exploitative strategy, or maybe you do something that's not even a long-term EV win, is another thing. We've covered this on previous podcasts. So for this game, if you come into the game just very simply saying, Tennessee is going to score, let's say, four points per possession they actually scored like 4.25 which is ridiculous by the way but let's say you think they're going to score four or 3.5 or 3.25 that's more than three it's more than three points so what does that mean now and if you want to win you're going to have to score more than three points per possession you have to score more than 3.25 points per possession so if you're kicking field goals that does not get you there now you can kick a field goal occasionally there's times to kick one i think if if it was fourth down and 10 on that first attempt, we went for it. Instead of fourth down and two, we take the field goal, right? right? Which is what we tried to do with the second one. So what does that mean to me? One, it means Napier comes into the game thinking they're going to score a lot of points. I'm aware our defense is bad. Everyone else is aware of it too. I'm not going to blindly assume we're going to shut them down because we're not. That's smart. That's self-awareness. We have to score and we have to score a lot. Secondarily, it's fourth down and two. I'm going to manage the game to consistently get myself into fourth down and short plays. And I'm going to run a bunch of really good plays, which he did. The film review is going to visually show all of those to you on every single fourth down play we ran. We had a chance for a big play, which means we called good plays. We had good play design. We had a good game plan. We had a good tactical strategy against our opponent. And we were right. He was right in his read that Tennessee was going to score all over Florida. So all those things are correct. So if you're thinking being as aggressive as he was in this particular game on fourth down was wrong, that is not the correct mathematical thought on any level. It was a cohesive, unified strategy to score as many points as possible against an opponent that was going to score against you. This was why I liked this, whereas I didn't like it versus Kentucky, where the opponent could not score, you were at home, and your quarterback was not mentally there. That was the game where you just keep deferring the pressure to them. This one, you had to keep scoring, right? You had to keep scoring. Uh, at the end of the day, there are times to kick field goals. There are times where these are very close decisions to be made, but in general, I think what you and I are unified in saying here, Alan, is that if you're playing a team that you think is going to score on you almost all the time, it is not tenable to get down there and kick two or three field goals if they're scoring touchdowns. And one, let's play this out really simply. They get three possessions, you get three possessions. You kick a field goal every time, you're averaging three points per possession, they get four, they're beating you 12 to nine. If you keep playing that out, they keep increasing their lead. But the reality is Tennessee was actually scoring touchdowns for much of this game. And the last possession where they're just shutting it down is one that hurt their actual points per possession. It would have been above five. So simply put, I thought it was right on point. I thought that every single one he went for was correct to go for. And fourth down and two, if you're wondering, on your opponent's 20-yard line in the first quarter is a majorly positive expected value play totally. to go for it. Like all the time as a meta strategy. So it's that much better when your opponent is really good at scoring. If we're playing a team that can't score on the road, take a field goal. I'm fine to get some opening momentum, but this was not that kind of opponent that we were playing. 
Yeah, and again, I think as you said, each play call made sense in the moment too with what we're attempting to do to Tennessee. And even the time it wasn't successful, it could have been successful had we executed it properly. So, um, all right, let's talk about the thing that had people up in arms, but I I don't really understand why people are up in arms about this, the the timeout at the end of the half. Um, So it's third down, third and 10, I believe. We have Tennessee back very deep. Yeah, they're on 15-yard line roughly. Right, so Florida calls a timeout to preserve some time. I I love this. I don't love think it's it. even controversial. Not at all. Now, they ended up scoring, but what do they need to do to score? They need to pick up a hero play on third down. Yep. They hit a 40, 50-yard bomb on an unbelievable catch. By well, the third guy. down play, sadly, wasn't a hero play. It was right. trash coverage by Trey Dean, where he's just <laughs> playing way off of well, uh, for hitch in, route, in which terms is of Hinden so Hooker. frustrating. But, yes, it was the correct call. And it was actually the correct defense on that play. If your strong safety comes down and, and covers the hitch route, there is nowhere to go. And Florida gets the ball back. But, again, you can't have one guy that's not making plays. So, regardless, it's it's the absolute right timeout, 100%, no doubt about it. You have to call that timeout there. Because you have to try to win the game. Because, again, what do you need? Max points, points per possession. You need the ball. You need to score. You have a rare chance where they're behind the eight ball, deep in their own end, where if you stop them there and they punt to you, your expected value is like two point something. It's very high. You're probably going to score. And scoring means a lot in this game. You can't just let them run the clock off to 50 seconds, punt it to you, and now you're probably not going to score. So again, this is a time where the risk was warranted. It had to be done. It was the absolute right move in our eyes here. For sure. Yeah, and I think the odds of Tennessee scoring a touchdown there are, are fairly low. Even if they're high. It's third and ten. You for get, sure. How many third and tens will even have them in the entire game? When you have your chance, you take your chance. That the game is going to hinge on plays like that. But you have to you have to you have to attempt to go for that. You have to try to make that stop. It is what it is. Credit Tennessee for that ninety nine yard drive. That changed the complexion of the entire game. But that's why it was also right to call a timeout. That was a really important drive. And Florida's trying to take all that momentum into the locker room. And unfortunately, it didn't work out. But definitely the right timeout. For sure. I think that was a game-changing moment there. It probably affected a lot of what happened later on in the game in terms of momentum and game pressure. Uh, unfortunate for Florida, for sure. Yeah, because Tennessee got a two-for-one. I mean, Florida Florida on third down has that, which we'll talk about, has a play where they think Tennessee jumps off sides. They don't. We don't get it. And then the next thing is Tennessee drives 99 yards and scores, gets the opening kickoff in the second half, drives down and scores. And all of a sudden, you had a 14-10 lead the last time AR was on the field, and now it's 24-14. Yeah, brutal. Total game changer. Brutal. All right. Um, now, Florida, as they scored towards the end of the game, went for two twice, right? Um, now, there some people are outright – Super frustrated about this. Before we get into whether it was good or bad, can you do a quick explainer of what the analytics are prompting you to do there, what Billy Napier was attempting there? Yeah, we've actually covered this a lot now. We covered it multiple times last year because the Chargers were doing this, and they still do this more than anyone else does. The funny thing is, I'm going to start with this. Most of you are familiar with the chart, as they call it. The chart, as I'm going to call it, it's been around in the NFL for like 30 years. It's not a new thing. This has been there forever, and coaches just reference it. And when they're down by a certain amount, they do what it says, except the reality is coaches often don't do what it says, which is the funny part. So that chart has said for 30 years without changing that if you score to put yourself down 11 points, which Florida was, you should always go for two. 
always go for two. Coaches rarely ever do it, but the math says it's positive to do it. Now, in this situation, what's really become popular is what I'm going to call the charger strategy because they just do it more than anyone else does. Typically in the fourth quarter, especially if there's more than seven or eight minutes left in the game and you score and you're down more than one score like this, you go for the two-point conversion because it gives you a chance, theoretically, to actually kick a field goal at the end to win the game. That's the idea, right? Rather than putting yourself down 10, you put yourself down nine. And then if you score a touchdown, get the ball back, kick a field goal, you're actually going to win the game outright. So what does this mean mathematically? Here's the simple example. Let's assume that you're 50% to get a two-point conversion to keep the math easy. One in two chance. If you get two cracks at that, which Florida's got to score two touchdowns anyway, then your chance of not getting it is one in four. One in four times you get nothing like Florida did. Three out of four times you get something, right? And then one out of four times, essentially, you get both extra points, which you don't need. So that's nonsensical. We only need one of those extra points. One of those extra points. So it means three out of four times good for us, one out of four times bad for us. Now let's walk through the nuance. If Florida gets the first two-point conversion, they are down nine, which seems ridiculous. They're still down two scores. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the rule of scores. All right. Right? Well, the rule of scores is still into play here. Florida was going to be down two scores no matter what. If you're down 10 or you're down 11 or you're down nine, you're still down two scores. Granted, a field goal is easier than you know a touchdown, but it's still within two scores. So that rule is still fine. So you get the first extra point, you're down nine. Now we score the touchdown like we did. We kick the extra point. We're down two. Now we get the onside kick. We're kicking a field goal to win the game. Now, why does this matter? Because if you go to overtime, your chances of winning are, let's say, 50-50, which they're actually not. But by basically doing this sequence where you give yourself a chance to win the game if you get that extra point, I mean, if you get the um, the two-point conversion instead, bumps the mathematical chance that you win up. And Alan, here's the really kicker. Ever so slightly. It's like basically a 1% add to your expected value. It's very small. Why do I bring that up? Because to me, here's the real reality of this call. This is a coin flip, almost certainly, with a slight bonus to you that you can win, which generally makes it more favorable to do it on the road. It's harder to win road games in general. It's harder to win road games in overtime. So you want to steal a win on the road. But if you think this decided the game one way or the other, it certainly did not, right? And in fact, the math was favorable for Napier to do it. It was favorable for him to do it. With all that being said, in the moment, I had a fun discussion with my buddy, Kyle Katani, who was totally in favor of it. And I was saying in this situation, there was too little time for me to love this strategy. We covered this with the Chargers too. I love the math, but the math is small. In that situation, I would have preferred to kick the extra point knowing that I can then tie the game and go to overtime because of what do I believe in? Human element, momentum, and EV. I think in a scenario where Tennessee's Florida's history comes into play and you've got the fans are already melting down. If Florida ties that football game with a field goal at the end and goes into overtime, Florida's momentum meter is like max, right? Human element size max. Now, does that lead to a higher percentage of winning statistically? It's impossible to quantify. That's part of the problem. But I'm in favor of that there. But also, I think my answer is I'm totally indifferent to this scenario because it doesn't really make a difference. Both of them are very fine to go with. And mathematically, going for two is slightly better. 
So if you're like really pissed off that Napier ruined Florida's chances, he actually didn't. He gave him a better mathematical chance of winning. But don't hang your hat on that and think that that was a bad decision. It was not. It's the better, smarter mathematical decision. Florida was unfortunate to not convert a single one of those two-point conversions. But in my opinion, the big weakness here, Alan, is Florida's two-point conversion plays. Both of them had had issues with those plays. How they were run, what they looked like. That was my bigger frustration in general than it was going for it. And that's like fourth down. And I want to circle back to this to tie everything together. Had Florida gone for it for six fourth downs and the plays were stupid and nonsensical and terrible, I would be on here saying, you cannot do that, right? But if you're going to go for it and you have a good feel for what you're going to get, then you're increasing your odds that you get it, then it's solid. So if you tell me that Coach Napier is not confident in his two-point conversions against Tennessee, I'm saying just kick the extra point. Absolutely. But if I'm a coach and I feel like I like my plays, I like my matchups, I'm going to go for two there. And I want to add all those nuances to let you know that's how layered this is. That's how nuanced this is. But the people that were freaking out on Twitter or social media or with their friends, that was a horrible decision. Again, you're against the math to say that. I think in the next 10 years, you're going to see coaches do this more and more and more often. Because if you repeat the scenario a thousand times, you win the most going for two twice in a row. And again, you only have to get it once. If Florida gets the second one, Alan, then they kick the, they kick the field goal to tie. All is fine. And the odds are three out of four times you get one of those two, right? So yeah. that's why you do it. So I 100% agree with you there. I think there's times where you wouldn't employ this strategy. But overall, I, I, I don't think you can really criticize Napier in this scenario. Now, you could say my gut would tell me do something different. But there was nothing on the field or with the team that would tell me that this wasn't at least as good of a strategy as the other one. So it. As you said, there's only slight advantage, slight disadvantage. So, um, yeah, I don't. I think people didn't understand this because it's non-traditional. So I haven't seen a lot of teams do it. I knew immediately what we were doing the moment we were doing. At first, I was like, "Wait, what?" I was like, "Oh, I did the math on how much we were down," and was like, "Okay, I see what we're trying here." At the moment, it didn't even feel like it mattered. Because that's the other reality is oftentimes these get lost when coaches do them yeah. because you don't get the onside kick and no one remembers anything about it. So it gets magnified because Florida recovered the onside kick. Right. So I don't know if, if you want to rip Napier for it, I, I would just challenge you. There's articles written about this. If, if what we were saying didn't, wasn't clear enough. I think the takeaway can be that this is going to become, I think the new standard overall as people adjust to the math behind it. It's just, new it's not it's not how coaching and you know decision making has gone so far so no and people really struggle with probabilities in general even smart people uh because oftentimes our emotion just sort of betrays us if if we get the wrong result and as an investor this is my life every day emotion rules often how people handle their portfolios or their money and you can tell them factually this is the most likely path to success eight out of ten times you'll win doing this two out of ten times you'll lose and if they lose twice in a row, they'll just abandon the strategy. Whatever, this junk's not working. You're like, no, no, eight out of 10 times you'll win. Just do it this way. And that's what's going on here, except this is like, you know, 5.05 times you win and 4.95 times you right. lose. And it's so infinitesimally small that it's unlikely to see the result or the fruit of that decision. So you can magnify it and say that was so crazy, especially when it defies what conventional people are doing. But make no mistake about it, as you said, Alan. This is going to become the norm because you get paid money to win football games and any increased chance you can get of winning a game, even 1%, is a chance that you want to put on your side. 
So it's a no-brainer from that regard. Just keep in mind, it is wise to factor in the human element. Agreed. That's really important. Not every game should that decision be made the way that it's made. There are nuances to this, but in this particular game, stealing game on the road against what is what was a superior opponent, if everything went right for you and you had a chance to score is good. And I want to bring this up last because this is what we talked about. We talked about this in the past when it was Alabama versus Florida and Mullen calling a timeout and running a two-point conversion, those sort of things. There is a a tricky element to going for two that can spur the team, your opponent, to be more aggressive. And I like to keep that in mind. When you're behind by that much, what do you want your opponent to do? To go into a shell and run, 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 punt, and just hope that time wins the football game. So there is an element here where you can get that wrong, and now Tennessee knows for sure if they give you the ball back, you can kick a field goal, let's say, right? Um to win, they're going to be far more likely to run their regular offense. And when the team is crushing you, that's not a good idea. So that is something to factor in, <laughs> is what's happening with this team. Yeah. Are they gaining yards at will? I mean, will I let them go to sleep a little bit? And if, if you can let them go to sleep a little bit and take a tie and go to overtime, choose that path. Now, again, a lot of nuances here, but that's the whole point is like, no one ever should be saying that Napier did the wrong thing here because he's on the side of math. It's also a million things going on that you could do. All of them could lead to a win or a loss. But when you're on the side of the math, you're on the side of stats, you're on the side of probability, you're on the side of most likely winning. Yes. And that is not wrong. So I think for us, like if he had chosen the other route, I don't think we would criticize him. Like this is fine. Now we're very firmly like in the timeout scenario. Had he not called that timeout, we would be, I would be talking about that. Yes, exactly. And so sometimes it's clear. Sometimes it's not clear. And we'll, we'll, we'll try to be clear ourselves about which of those is more favorable or not. Okay, let's talk about the offense first. A really incredible display overall when you look at the numbers this week. Um, 594 yards of offense, 141 yards rushing, which, you know, is not how Florida's looked because on the other side of that ledger, 453 yards passing, 3.4 yards per rush, which is really, you know, not much for the way this four team's been running no, the ball. not great, not at all. Yeah. Uh, one interception, which we said last play of the game. Doesn't uh, count. Yeah, one fumble. Crucial. Yep, big, big, big. 7-13 on third down, but as we said before, 5-6 uh, on fourth down. AR himself, 24-44, 453, two TDs. 17 carries, 62 yards rushing, and two TDs there. The backs, all have various amounts of not much success there. Eight carries for Johnson, nine for ETN, right for eight, all – Somewhat similar yardage there. Only one sack allowed. They were four of six in the red red zone. Uh, Florida actually ran more plays here. 88 plays to, to Tennessee's 73. Um, let, let's start with AR. So we've been joking about good AR, bad AR. We got good to great AR in this game. Um, I, I was so encouraged by his play, his demeanor, the fact that he responded in so many situations. Uh I thought you did a really good job last week of, of making suggestions about what, what could be done to help him other than just hope that he plays better. Right. Um, we talked a lot about the scheme that Florida runs, ask him to avert his eyes from the field as, as he turns around for a handoff or a bootleg or something like that. Whereas the traditional spread allows him to keep his eyes on the field the entire time. Um, so we saw, different plays right substantially but let me ask as you watched it was it 
schematic play changes or just a more confident player? What what had more to do with his success? Yeah, I think it was it was it was schematic changes for sure. Now, to be fair, a lot of people on Twitter were saying, "Oh, he's in the shotgun all the time." Well, we're always in the shotgun. Napier always runs shotgun. The difference was what you said. It was where do his shoulders, where does his back go, where is his helmet pointing towards? Essentially, meaning where is his eye? Where are his eyes? And the majority of plays in this game, the overwhelming majority, his eyes were on the field. And he's really good at that. And that's what we've seen. And that builds some confidence. And early on in the game, like the first 10 plays were that way. And so one, I want to say hats off to Napier. This was not like a rocket science observation, right? I think anyone who's worked with quarterbacks or been a quarterback can quickly tell this guy's not comfortable. What's the new factor? Turning his back. And this is also common with every college quarterback that goes to the NFL. But Napier did a phenomenal job of restoring that confidence sending his quarterback on the road to a hungry Tennessee team in game where he right out of the gate just looked and felt like himself, uh, which was fantastic. And again, that was largely scheme, largely getting stuff that AR was comfortable with, running a lot more spread, a lot fewer plays out of the pistol. And when we ran pistol, it was simplified and it was not asking him to have to do things that he struggled with. And he basically got into the flow of the game remained confident the entire game and this was not only AR's best performance as a Gators quarterback it was Napier's best performance by far as an offensive play designer and play caller he designed great plays for this game he called them generally at the right time a ton of creativity in the run plays and the passing plays a great game plan to take third and 10 third and 11 make it fourth and one or two all in all a really solid game plan I would have to say this is probably one of his best game plans of his entire career without having gone through every game he's done just because of how versatile and wide-ranging it was I spent like 90 minutes putting out a YouTube film on it because it's just so good and it's so different from what we saw and it's all the things we wanted to see Allen Florida went under center which we talked about running play action for and a big play on fourth down that way we ran more than just two receivers on deep verticals. Although we hit we hit some of those two receiver plays where we ran double moves, which we talked about. We utilized our strong offensive line pass protection to run vertical plays with those double moves. Uh, we just It was just a lot better complexity-wise, and there's still way more things we can do, but this was a huge, massive step forward, not only for AR, but also for Napier. And hopefully this is not just a one-off. Hopefully this just continues on into this season. But we asked that big question, is Napier the guy who can tinker and tool with his quarterback to get him what he needs? He made that quote, you got to look yourself in the mirror. Sometimes it's the teacher, right? And resounding checkmark for this game. Data point analyzed, phenomenal success, huge difference, great job to both coach and quarterback. Something that should be noted and celebrated and should be really encouraging with the caveat that we're going to need more to make sure it's a trend. But this was a shining beacon of, of, of goodness and then hopefully hope for us going into the future. Again, across the board, and the film breakdown is going to go way in detail. That we'll leave it at the higher level here. But we saw so many things we hadn't seen before. Right. I was really excited from the opening first two series is watching what we were doing. It seemed like you know the coach and the player were on the same page about what was best for him. He talked about calling plays that his quarterback is going to be comfortable with. I think he did that. We we were questioning, is he just a guy that can build a system and you're going to have to adapt to his system or can he adapt to you as a player? And he really helped AR in this game. And they did run him more, obviously, a lot more carries, but not just for the most part, hey, just run, I guess. Like some really creative schematic things that allowed him to get the edge that made use of, uh, 
you know, have, Tennessee having to account for him as a running quarterback. Saw more zone read stuff. Um, really, really good. And also, AR responded, right? He could have still melted mentally, even with everything that Napier called. He could have missed wide receivers, gotten frustrated, could have gotten jittery, could have, you know, locked on to bad reads or thrown late. All the things he was doing the previous two weeks, he could have still done, even with the more adaptable play calls and schematic changes. So I think it had to be both. The coach had to help the quarterback, and the quarterback had to actually be himself out there. And as you're watching him, everything felt normal and natural. Like it was like those previous two games did not exist. Like this is what you would expect to see from him. And he played great. I mean, there's very little to nitpick from him. Big picture. Now, again, on some key moments, even him running the ball, it's like he made some bad choices. One of them uh, you highlighted even on Twitter that caused the fumble. I don't know if caused the fumble, allowed the fumble to happen because he wasn't skirting around the edge, you know, running for a first down most likely. So uh, I loved it. The best play from him, I think, for me was the play that I think will get remembered rightly for uh, Keon Zipper bulldozing guys, spinning away from them on that incredible touchdown where he should get all the acclaim for that. But when you watch AR on that play, he's confident. He's not perfect, right? But he's confident. He moves around in the pocket. He keeps his eyes upfield and makes a really difficult throw. Um, And, you know, a, a bad throw is going to maybe be picked. A good throw gets us, well, I don't know if you would say it gets us a touchdown because Zipper had to go Hulk smash mode to get that. But that was awesome to watch him be in the middle of that really pressure-packed situation, navigate that pocket, make that throw. So encouraging. Yeah, just fantastic. And again, the guy that was on film, this was the guy that we saw on film, like we said. And it's not surprising on film he struggles in the run game. A lot of people are talking about his inability to run the ball as well as Emery. AR is fantastic at zone reading. Great zone read quarterback. I mean, shredded them. They ate multiple of his fakes. He's never run behind a zone running system where he's the quarterback running something like split zone and he's running a counter. It's different. There's a two-way gap. You have to read it out. We've talked about how Naquan Wright is not at all comfortable with Good this. Point. Trevor Etienne is learning and Montrell's an expert. So for AR, he missed two scenarios. One was a layup where it was basically a power run to the right side. That fumble you talked about, he follows his blockers, could be a touchdown. That's just not trusting the play if things don't look quite right. And that first fourth and two, well, the second fourth and two after the quarterback sneak, that might be a touchdown play as well where he avoids the real run, which is a counter through the split zone, which is, again, probably a touchdown, at least a first down, and, and kind of chooses to maybe think about doing something different. So he'll clean that stuff up. That's new to him. But the things we saw him put on film, he did really well. And again, I don't blame at all Billy Napier for coming out and installing his offense and seeing how AR handles it. That's part of being a coach. You need to run the stuff that you're most comfortable with that you think leads to the highest chance of winning, right? Much like we talked about Dan Mullen. But once you recognize, hey, this quarterback's not grasping this, I have to, I have to change things. We did it. We even incorporated wider splits on several plays that were successful. I'd like to see more spreading the field width-wise than we're currently doing. Uh, but all in all, this was this was just a really successful outing from the offense. And even though we had 21 points at one point, we were driving the ball up and down the field, right? 
and we had a fumble there and some other things, but we were converting thirds and longs. We were very dangerous. We had open receivers all the time, something we had not seen at all. We frequently had multiple guys open. This was what we needed to see. Now, Tennessee's pass defense is admittedly weak. It's been weak. It's not ready yet, uh, but they are a well-organized team. They generally don't blow things. And really the major chink in AR's game was the run game, and he still is not hitting his running back checkdowns. Each game there's four to five plays where you could throw the ball to a running back on a checkdown. It'd be a big play. He missed a crucial two-point conversion to Trevor Etienne, the first one he was wide open, and he missed Naquan Wright for a walk-in touchdown earlier. Yeah. There were a host of other plays he could check that down, but all in all his reading was on display. I displayed this on, on YouTube. He was reading the field with confidence. He was throwing the ball on time. He had some absolute dimes in this football game. And his misses were misses into the right place. He didn't really throw a single questionable pass the entire game, despite throwing it 44 times on the road with pressure on him on every single drive because Florida had to score. Remarkable performance. This is by far the biggest silver lining. We can only hope, again, this wasn't just some sort of random anomaly, which I have no reason to believe it is, Alan. Those skills are repeatable. The same thing we said about Trask, we'll say about AR. Those skills are repeatable. He just has to be in that kind of system that makes him comfortable, and he'll keep doing them time and time and time again. I have no reason to doubt that. Yeah, the stuff that you mentioned, right? Hey, I didn't really run the right way on this wide zone play, or hey, I missed the running back on this check down. That's where you expect him to still need improvement, right? Not the guy who just totally imploded the previous two weeks. So if he's back on track, I think the sky's still a limit. Now, he's got to come out here. Yeah, I don't know if Eastern Washington counts, but in these next few SEC games and prove that he can put these performances back to back to back. Um, okay, uh, let, let me pivot to the run game real quick. Now, the run game alternately was stifled, which is why Florida was in so many bad down and distance. They had to create so many fourth downs. Now, it, it wasn't anemic. It was still somewhat productive and got the job done on a few play place here and there but wasn't the weapon it had been the first three weeks now we had mentioned that moving away from the pistol formation might mitigate run game success but give me your point of view here why was the run game so stifled was it was that changed from the pistol or was tennessee doing things to prevent Florida from having success running the ball well certainly tennessee was going to load the box like every team we've seen usf kentucky you know, Utah, they've all followed the same obvious game plan. But what really was the difference here was that Florida was one player away on probably 15 different running plays. And it was a different player almost every time from having a big play, at least a five-yard carry, sometimes a 20-yard carry, and it, and it wouldn't work out. One reason for that was Tennessee, their senior, number six, uh, Byron played a, Byron Young played a, excellent football game i mean he was all over the place it didn't matter where they lined that guy up he was beating people he beat garage he beat barber he, he was beating our running backs beating our tight ends i mean he was a menace and that For messed sure. us up but even outside of him occasionally tennessee would get an individual one-on-one -on -one win and when you run zone you can't you can't you can't have that with any play style but especially zone because the entire o-line is working as one unit and he may have slid through and caused a loss so it's encouraging because the O-line is so much better looking on film than what we've seen in the past decade. It's unbelievable. And it's only going to get better. And we're playing some young guys. I mean, Barber's a redshirt freshman out there doing pretty pretty well, mm -hmm. right? So that was the major reason why. There were gaps. We were creating big holes at times. We had some really nice opportunities. 
Uh, I'm encouraged by that. So I'm not discouraged by this level, especially given that Tennessee was going to sell out. They played a ton of man defense. They loaded the box with all their extra defenders to make sure they could stop it. They brought tons of pressure off the edge like we've seen teams do. They were dying on the hill to stop the run. And even with that, we probably should have averaged five, five and a quarter yards per carry if we just could have gotten a little bit better execution at times. And that wasn't because the guys were doing the wrong thing. They were just losing some of those one-on-one battles. So that is an encouraging answer as to why it did not work out that well. Uh, There was a lot of opportunity out there. And that's the same thing as seeing open receivers and not hitting them. You want to see on film that your coaches are designing things that work. And that was true in the run game. Stuff was working. Stuff was there. We're just a little bit off on the execution. And I think that's the difference between a team like USF versus a team like Tennessee, even though Tennessee's run defense is not like the best in the world. If you're going to USF can load the box and we can still have a ton of success running the ball. If an SEC team is going to load the box, you have to be excellent. You can't let anything go wrong. If they're going to try to dictate to you that your strength is not going to be your strength. And as you said, Florida wasn't quite able to get there in those adverse situations. But as you said, it wasn't like they got blown off the ball and they couldn't do anything. So I I think Florida's still going to want to run the ball, even though teams are going to be inviting them to pass. And so. And let's not forget that Florida converted two third downs, third and nines running the ball. So when they got the timing right, and this is the power of what we said Napier's offense is again, I'm a, I'm a spread it wide. I'm a Tennessee kind of offense guy mixed with some pro style run with AR. That'd be sensational. But the benefit of Napier's offense and how good he is at designing run plays are that teams are having to sell out to stop the run. So Florida got 12 targets against the safeties of Tennessee. In the NFL, coaches get paid big money to design plays or a scheme that gets their wide receivers against safeties. That's like the name of the game, right? So that's why this offense can be high ceiling. I think it can be even a higher ceiling, much like we have about Mullen, if he just leans more into more of the air raid passing concepts rather than all the bunch stuff, which he did here. But... But yeah, this is inc- this is encouraging. This is this is good stuff, and this is going to be repeatable. And on top of that, now the next SEC team we play, which is Missouri, has to look at the film of AR just throwing the ball all over the yard. And as we talked about on YouTube, Alan, as I talked about, there's ample opportunity for Florida to have thrown for 800 yards in this game because Tennessee was playing suicide run defense. And Florida was not trying to maximally punish them yet because you can't build that out for a quarterback. You don't necessarily know what you're going to get from. But if he keeps moving in this direction of consistency and teams have to play more even-handed run versus pass, the sky's the limit for what this running game can do, what this offense can do. And that's what's exciting. So on film, this was just, again, top-notch performance. You should not worry about the running game in this situation at all what you should be happy with is florida put some stuff on film proving they can pass the football and that's what's going to have to happen for florida to open up other stuff yeah and i think we've talked about the wide receivers not being the most dangerous set um but i think you've rightly you know talked about and we've talked about that some of the route combinations have been uninspired some of the schematic you know ideas and concepts in terms of not running some of the you know, just simple two-on-ones or mesh or whatever uh, that we got to see in this game, and you saw them play well. You, I mean, every time you highlight Ricky Pearsall on film, he does something really nice. His routes are spectacular. The guys are good enough. 
to win you the game. I think you saw that. Now, there's not a ton of them. But between Pearsall and Shorter, you have a couple dudes that, who can play. And and if you're going to dare us to throw the ball, they're perfectly capable of being successful. Well, especially if you can get guys in space. You know, I thought Xavier Henderson got the ball in space, got a lot of yak on those shorter kind of throws to the boundary. We started to use him more as a guy you can put, pin him on the sideline, make somebody go out there and cover him. If they want to bail out and cover those two deep routes, throw it down to him. So just all in all, again, really solid stuff here from the offense. Um, we're not going to, we don't have electric playmakers, right? We don't have guys that create separation yet. But the exciting part is if you can if you can do this stuff with kind of the pedestrian support staff you have with the receivers, and that's not a disservice to them. It's just we don't have first-round talent at wide receiver, which I think Napier is going to hope to be recruiting, then this is a good sign. We needed to see this. We had not seen separation. We had not seen open receivers. It was very concerning. All that stuff we saw now. And again, Tennessee, you can say what you want about Tennessee. They're kind of equal to Florida talent-wise. That's most of the teams remaining on Florida's schedule. It's not Georgia, it's not A&M, but it's everyone else. Everyone else is going to be some form of that. And so if we're able to do that against Tennessee, Missouri, LSU, South Carolina, Vanderbilt, Florida State, that changes the look of the rest of this year for Florida. And that's what we need to see for the rest of the year against those teams to be convinced that this is, again, stable, productive, and launching us forward into the future. Okay, anything else you want to hit on before changes we'd like to see yeah in general the young guys continue to impress right the young guys to get playing time uh continue to impress i think whittemore obviously impressed on film in this game it was good to see him back catching several passes he's a really good route runner tall long guy sure hands nice to see him getting involved and uh you know again like i said all in all i think florida's game plan was a good one i think they planned to go for those fourth downs so let that settle in with you on offense that was not like shocking oh we're rolling the dice here they came in expecting to have to set up plays to get to fourth down they were very comfortable versus tennessee on fourth and two and three and this and the benefit of that alan is you can get big chunk plays if you're in fourth and two or three and you're willing to take shots and lastly florida finally had success against cover zero each week i've been imploring them to do something against cover zero because teams are playing we're not punishing them there's still a lot of room for improvement with our route combinations against that, but we did punish Tennessee in the cover zero snaps they paid. They played us, and that led to Florida touchdowns, which was important. All right, a few changes we'd like to see. You already mentioned AR hitting those checkdowns. There is yeah, some obvious big plus plays if he would go to his check down to his running back or whoever is the assigned person there. That Not just like a check down so you don't have a negative play, but a check down to a big play. Um, it's there. I think we were both laughing about the stupid stationary offensive line. Twice they've gambled and been wrong about an defensive offsides. I don't think it really buys you anything anyway. Like if you're wrong, you're only it's only negative for you. If you're right, what what does it matter? Just stop it. It's dumb. There's a reason most people don't do it. I remember FSU doing it back in the day. We all laughed at them. Now we're doing it. I hate it. I hate it so much. And what you said, it's it's for an analytical coaching staff. I guess one of the offensive line coaches has convinced Napier it's a good idea, but it's time to unconvince yourself, Billy. It's a bad idea for what you just mentioned. The best play you can get in football is a guy jumping off sides. Let's call it a free play where your O-line then still blocks and it's a free play. Well, you can't get a free play when the O-line stands there in their stance for five seconds and your quarterback's being attacked by five defenders. 
It's a joke. It's ridiculous. That's got to go away. I never want to see it again. I'm not hopeful it's going to go away, but it needs to go away. It is absurd. Other news there, though, for a change I'd like to see is Whittemore. More Whittemore. I would like to see Whittemore on the field more, uh, especially if I could get Shorter, Parasol, Henderson, and Whittemore. I think that would be very nice. We saw that a couple of times. I like that. I think we need to lean more into those kind of sets, right? Uh, that obviously pulls us out of our 12 personnel, which we ran far fewer times this game than previously. We leaned a lot more into 11 personnel, one running back, one tight end. And uh, I think that was beneficial for us. And also it should be noted, the tight ends, Xanders and, and Zipper are doing a really nice job. Xander should get a lot of credit for making himself what he can possibly be to go from not a tight end at the college level, you know, bouncing around. He was one, then he was defensive and he's bounced back. He's acquitted himself as a, as a competent blocker, a sort of run of the mill tight end, but that make no mistake about that to play at the sec level. And that's not really your spot, Alan, and be useful and be consistent and not make mistakes out there. That should be noted. And that's, and that's solid. So Florida's not going to get amazing production out of those guys, nor are they going to get amazing blocking, but they are getting consistency. And that's helping this team as well with their output. Yeah, I would like to see more snaps for Whittemore too. I think he's really effective when he's in there. And yeah, that means you're probably not doing what your preference is as a coaching staff, but that's okay. Because if that's going to help your team win, you want to lean into that. You want to do it. And the most important thing, I think, for me to end on AR is keep him facing the field. Don't get cute and think, okay, let's keep having him learn how to put his back to the field. Let's save that more for the offseason. Let's win some football games. Napier has the plays. He can keep creating new stuff each week. You can add complexity. Let's just do what he does really well, and let's just sprinkle in like he did the pistol. I like the pistol. The pistol's fine. And you can run the pistol without turning your back, which we did. Keep that modification there. I know it slightly hurts your ability to run play action. It's not quite as deceptive. I don't care because AR is four to five times better if he's not doing it. So let's keep that modification in there. Let's not overthink ourselves and go for optimal, optimal by regressing the QB. Just keep him confident. Keep on going. Let's see what this offense can do down the road. Well said. All right, let's talk about the defense. Who was the opposite? They got torched in almost every way. Uh, These numbers here. Okay. I don't even want to read them really. 364 (laughs) yards passing, 227 yards rushing, that's 11.3 yards per pass, 5.4 yards per rush. They were 6 of 9 on third down, 6 of 6 in the red zone. Man. Okay. Um, We don't have yards per play on here, but it's stupid. I think it was like over 8. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was 11 point, you know, what is it, 3 per pass. That's insane. That's ridiculous. It's like no resistance there. Oh, man. And it, and. A lot of blown plays, but just them having success on regular plays, too. A lot. Any play. Call Any a play, play. It was going to work. Hinton Hooker had a whale of a game. It's a joke. These stats are like a literal joke. 22 of 28 for 349. Average 12.5. Yeah. There's no the numbers. Gross yards. Yeah, yeah there you go. From. And then two TDs. He also had... 13 carries for 112 yards rushing and a TD. Jabari Small, the feature back, 19 carries, 90 yards, TD. Jalen Wright also had a TD. Um, Yeah, basically, they did all this as well without Cedric Tillman, who's their best receiver. 
Right. Let's, we haven't, we've gone this far in the program not mentioning that. Their number one targeted guy and best receiver wasn't even out there. And th- this felt really interesting because it wasn't like Tennessee was just better at every position. No, not personnel-wise. No. Definitely not. They beat Florida scheme to scheme, but also, as you said, Tennessee puts a ton of pressure on you to play correctly almost all the time everywhere because of how far they spread you out. And I, I want to see if you just agree with this statement. Tennessee played well, no doubt. They played excellently. Hooker was awesome. But it felt like their success was more about Florida's self-inflicted wounds than their just ability to execute on the highest, highest level. Would you agree with that? So I'm going to not agree with that, but here's the reason why. And it's what you said. It's easy for for me as a, as a player or as a coach or as a podcaster or for any of you to think the same thing. That's a dumb play. Why would he do that? But the reality is when you're coaching college kids and Tennessee motions a guy from one spot to the other and that causes someone to blow their coverage, whose fault is that? Like who gets the credit? Well, Tennessee moved the guy on purpose thinking that might cause a blown coverage and they got it. Totally. Is it, is it, is it a mistake Alabama makes? Nope. But we're not Alabama. Not yet at least. And so that's why it's hard. Like you can, is, is it a mistake that happens in the NFL? Nope. But we don't have NFL players. And so that's why I want to lean on and say, Tennessee asks questions of your defense that are very simple in nature. And like, Hey, you have to guard this guy. You probably have to play man. But they also give you a million chances to screw it up. And when you screw it up, they will punish you maximally. And that's why I like that often. So on one hand, of course, it's self-inflicted. If you blow a coverage, it's self-inflicted. But if you're blowing coverages because of how they're moving their pieces around, that's well, also partially that. I think right? there's got to be a, a scale there, too. And I'm not disagreeing with you. I no, think there is a scale. True. That's what I'm saying. I think it is, so it is, is it, a scale. So is it they there. did something small that only confuses you if you're dumb or this was really tricky and they confused us. And so I technically, yes, you should have diagnosed that, but that was super tough and you got to give them mostly the credit. And therein lies the rub, right? Is that no, what they're doing is what they do and it's not confusing. It's basic in terms of football. Now, most teams don't run what Tennessee runs, but the beauty of it is if you're going to spread your team out that wide you do get a benefit in that you're creating space, but you also get a, a drawback in that there's only so many things you can run. If you're going to spread your receivers, and you're going to pin them against the sideline. Well, then the corners are going to line up an inside leverage and not let you go to the inside. That's the trade-off, right? You can make these trade-offs. Um, when a guy motions from the interior to the furthest wide out and resets and you're playing man, the corner bumps over and takes the furthest guy. And you as the inside guy, like trading in this case, bumps over and takes a slot guy. That's what happens. You communicate and you get it right. That's not complicated to your point. And yet Florida blew it. Florida blew basic stuff, simple stuff. It was not a variety of guys coming out of the backfield, right? Tennessee does not do that stuff. They're not in bunch sets running crackback blocks and mesh routes. It's basically pretty standard. But what they do is they make it hard because Florida... Allen wanted to play a bend but don't break scheme, which makes it harder. And we'll have to talk about that. But that made it harder on Florida because we were trying to do some complicated things on defense that I think were overcomplicated and unnecessary and did not follow what Pitt did. And Pitt 
I think, defended Tennessee by far the best, and Florida paid the price for that. But self-inflicted wounds, yes. If I'm coaching, I'm mad at my squad because I prepped all week for this stuff, and they blew it. So that's where you say it's self-inflicted. But you also say, I'm not on the field as a coach. That college kid is. And if I couldn't get him ready enough, either he's the wrong guy or he's really uncomfortable playing against this offense because he's not used to being out on an island with so much space around him that he's making mistakes. And that's pressure induced by Tennessee. For so sure. it goes both ways. And we're not the only team that Tennessee does this to. It's not like they're no. normally anemic and exactly. and they shredded us, right? Um, like the UCF, USF game where it's like, why are they doing what they're doing? We're just we're just uniquely bad at stopping them. It so I think you know if you think about last year's game against Tennessee, they they hit they busted some plays, or get, made Florida bust some plays, and they had big success. But other than that, Florida largely largely held them down. Felt like this year, even without the busted plays, it would have taken Tennessee was scored just taking them longer. Now, the plus side of that is maybe you get a few stops, right? If you're just letting people run free down the field, you have no hope. But my intuition is that Florida, if they clean those things up, Tennessee still would have put up 30-plus points. Yeah, and that's the key, right? Personnel-wise, we have issues. That's going to lead to coaching questions like why are certain guys still playing? Florida played 20 snaps in man. We played only one in cover zero. Last week, I gave you the astounding stat that Pitt played 28 snaps in cover zero. They did so with a bunch of three-star and under-athletes, and they largely held Tennessee in check. Tennessee scored three points in the second half. They punted the ball six times. They turned it over twice. They turned it over on downs once. That's nine stops, Allen. Nine. Amazing. And they did it with cover zero. Florida instead thought, we're going to overplay the pass, underplay the run, because Tennessee can't run, which might be a great strategy if Florida had linebackers. But newsflash, we do not. And we paid a heavy price for that. And on top of that, we're still playing guys like Trey Dean. And it's this point I'm going to say this. On this podcast, our job, Alan and I's job, is not to pick on anyone. It's not personal. When we say Trey Dean is struggling out there, he's struggling out there on film and has been for years. When this happens, it's no longer Trey Dean's fault. It's the coach's fault. Trey Dean should not be out there. Trey Dean is costing Florida's football team points each and every week. And he's having no repercussions. He plays the most snaps. Bernie gives you some good plays with mainly a lot of bad plays. But Tradine mainly just gives you bad plays. That's not great. Uh, Helm blew a coverage. You know, people thought Dean blew two. I think the reality is Helm blew one, Dean blew one. That's not great. Those are two of their biggest plays, right? But the one Dean blew was unbelievably inexplicable that led to a 70-yard pass and a layup. At the SEC level, it shouldn't happen. So I was frustrated with this game plan. We wanted Florida either to play like a max zone, like being really creative, dropping a lot of guys back, and then kind of spying Hooker when he runs or playing a very aggressive cover zero, taking advantage of our athletes. And hey, how about you take Trevez off the field, take Dean off the field, and put your other corners out there, right? Put Moore and Kimber and Marshall, and put all those guys out there together and cover them up. Great, and then play in the box with what you want. Get a little more creative with this. I just didn't like what Florida's game plan was. It could work in theory schematically if you had different personnel. It totally could. If you have Alabama, and their personnel, Alabama would probably play Tennessee much like Florida did. They probably will play them much like Florida will, but they're going to shut them down with their with their undersized, I mean, their undermanned guys in the box. They'll do it. They'll stop them. So that is schematically sound with different talent. I think it was a little bit of a dream to do this against Tennessee with our talent, and I think it sets our best talent on the bench, which is our depth at corner. I think that's where we're best, and I think we largely tried to win this game with Trey Dean 
and our linebackers kind of playing the flex roles. And that, to me, Alan, is a mismatch of personnel and talent. And I really, really hope the rumors I'm hearing, which are that there's going to be several guys benched on defense for younger guys, is true and real because I'm, I'm done with it. I've had enough of it. This season is already over when it comes to winning anything. We're 0-2 in the SEC for the first time since 1986. It's time to build the future. I don't need to see those guys anymore. They tried their best. Thank you for your service. You're not good enough on film. Anyone else must get a shot here. Anyone else must be building for the future because we're just wasting time and snaps. And that's direct to say, but it's the reality and it's time for that to end. Yeah, and I I totally get what they're trying to do with this, right? It's it's not nonsensical. Like you play the veteran guys and hope that you can pick up some wins until the young guys come along. But right now you're not getting anything from the older guys that you wouldn't get theoretically from the younger guys, right? Busted plays, mistakes, filling the wrong gaps, right? It's hard. It's hard to watch those young guys, especially a linebacker, fill the wrong hole or keep you know, making mental mistakes over and over, just not understanding what they're going to do. I understand as a as a coach that would be that would drive you nuts. But it's not like you're getting all that much better production from the older guys. So I agree with you 100%. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate what you said. I, defensively, it didn't seem like we schematically couldn't stop them, right? That we were doing some just stupid stuff. It just we weren't going to be able to execute that game plan with the players we had on the field. And that that's where it feels, like, as you said, is a dream. Could it have worked? Certainly. But not with the guys you're asking to do it. And that feels like you're just hoping for a good result. And that's not really, hope is not a plan, you know? And there's sometimes where, okay, we're overmatched and we just got to do some stuff and hope they mess it up. Let's do a bunch of crazy stuff. That, that That's a fine, you know, if you're a, a, a team that is way less talented, throw whatever gets the wall and see if it might work. But as you said, we are talented in certain areas, productive in certain areas, and we didn't play to those strengths as much as we could have. And that feels like it's a missed opportunity to to try that. And as you said, it was not like Pitt plays them two weeks from now and we could be like, man, I wish we'd actually have seen that Pitt tape of what that would do if we had tried that. It was there. Again, maybe the coaching staff is just not ready to play that kind of coverage with this group of players that they don't normally ask them to do that kind of stuff. But you, you it was hard to get worse results, right? Tennessee was scoring at will. So why not try almost anything else, even if it, your team isn't comfortable doing it? If they blow the coverage, guess what? They're blowing the coverage on the stuff you're asking them to do right now. Correct. And I think that's what you want to see. And obviously, we're, I'm going to reserve comments on Tony. We have to let the data pull up. Uh, that's what we do on this on this podcast, right? We let things go, we let them build. We see who they sub and who they don't sub. It, it'll be you know measured in years before and years being this is year one that's year two before i come on and say things like we said about grantham when it was clear we had seen enough data eventually it hurled it and we said this is it i've seen enough i've seen all i need to know this is what he is is what we have we can't know yet with tony obviously it's his first time at this kind of level of job his his theory of football is super sound when you hear him talk about it most defensive coordinators would not be willing to employ such an extreme strategy but i think the wisdom in being a strategist is looking at a team in Pitt who played tennessee last year played him again this year and devised a very special scheme for just them that worked really, really well. I think there was a lot of wisdom to say, 
we should probably have this at least as a backup. Let's try our base, make them beat our base in the first quarter. Totally fine. Most NFL teams do that. Here's the tactical plan if this is not working. And I think Florida had had chips to use. We haven't used them yet. My hope is that we start using those chips in the future. We get away from what is obviously not working. And if young guys are failing, they're getting experience. That's a benefit and a bonus, right? And that's what we're looking for. So obviously frustrating game. Silver lining here, Alan, is if you don't blow those two plays, Tennessee's passing yards could be, I'm going to say could because they were still moving the ball easily, could be hundreds of yards less, 140 or so less, right? Hooker's big run when he escapes a sure sack is 50 yards. So there's three huge plays there that dictate a lot of their yardage. But to your point, they were moving the ball very easily. So they easily could have replaced those plays with something else. Florida was largely not putting them under pressure. Florida was successful multiple times stunting the plays that Tennessee wanted with that coverage. And then they were unable to stop hooker running or we did get some sacks. So again, it was middling. It could have worked. Alabama, I think, would take that tactic, which is what I want to say. We weren't doing stupid stuff we've seen Grantham do. It literally makes no sense on any planet ever. It's outdated. We were doing things that make sense theoretically, but with our personnel, I just thought it was more of a dream. All right, Vinchel Miller started this game, had a hero play where he punched the ball out early on, and I was like, wow. And I didn't play a ton. He played off and on. Did you notice a big difference with him and without him? No, because we said this game was not really going to be a Ventrell Miller game. Now, of course, he, he forced a fumble. That's a big play, right? He's generally in the right spot. And Ventral Miller's a you know a nice guy. He's a he's a middling SEC linebacker, which for Florida makes him a hero <laughs> at this stage. But you know it, this was not the kind of game where we were really going to get super exposed without him. Uh, most of it was occurring outside of that. And then look, to be fair, if you're going to rush four guys at Hooker, and you're going to play coverage, which we did multiple times, and there's no spy there, you're going to sell out to cover them. That's a tall order. That's a tall order. Florida lost the edge once or twice in those situations, mm-hmm. but even if they're just waiting for him there, that's tough. And that You're going to see that in the NFL all the time, right? When you have an elusive quarterback, you got to go get him. But the problem is you want to go get him. They're spreading you way out, and therein lies the magic of their offense. Yeah, we, I want to get to that in a second, but let, I want to stay on the linebackers here. Uh, anything that you notice from the young guys here, Either Shamar James, Scooby Williams, um, anybody else that got on the field that you were interested in? Nobody was really flashing uh, on the linebacker scenario. I mean, Shamar James is getting better. I think he's. A, you can see his athleticism when they send him after the passer, but you can see that with Bernie too. If you send Bernie after the passer, he is a top-level pass-rushing linebacker. But that's one phase of being a linebacker, and maybe that happens five times a game. Uh, Shamar, I'm not saying is Bernie, but I think right now you see flashes of that. He, he's he's comfortable doing that. He's trying to learn the rest, but he seems to be getting better every game with regards to where he's going and where he's moving. We'll see how that progresses over the next month or two with what's happening. But as far as linebackers go, there's just not someone that's, you know, there's no hopper that jumps off the screen. This guy, this guy's a natural linebacker. So I think they're all, you know, a work in progress. It feels like, Alan, it'd be nice to see some more of these guys play some snaps, you know, get more substantial data on, on, on Wingo or black or others. We've really seen almost none of them to this point. True. All right. So there were a couple of moments we already referenced two of them where the rush gets close, but doesn't get home. Um, yeah. Anything on that, that why was the rush unable to get home was just not finishing the play hooker being excellent. Is there some kind of like strategic deficiency that was at play there? Well, it's what I mentioned. We were loading up to cover the pass. 
So we weren't sending pass rushers very often, and we were often playing two men down against their run game. So they kind of quickly figured out that our tactic, and again, this is why Heupel's good, that our tactic was to do that. So they just went into 11 personnel, put an H-back back there, and started going eight versus six in the run game, just gouging us with runs, and, and then occasionally throwing some simple slants, some simple digs, uh, punishing us for not playing enough guys in the box. And when we played enough guys in the box, we blow coverages. So if you're going to play under man in the box, you're not going to get pressure on quarterbacks. I mean, that's the reality. And much of Florida's issues all year long are that teams can get their first man open. And it's really hard for a defensive line to get pressure and sack a guy when they're down a man or two on the line and the linebackers can't help them. It's tough. And I continue to say, I think our D line is fine. And people are on Dexter. They're on other guys. I mean, he's getting double teamed every single play. It's like, what do, you, what do you want him to do? He's a defensive tackle. You think he's going to blow up a double team and get in there and make a sack? I mean, that's just not going to happen very often, right? And so we don't really have an easy solution to this problem. We don't have another edge guy who's really putting pressure on people. For all the talk in the offseason about Princely, which we said, temper your expectations. We'll see what happens on film. Princely, he's been a non-factor. He, he doesn't hold the edge well. He's right. been responsible for giving up big plays, and he generally does nothing to rush the passer. He's getting absorbed out there. He's undersized. And I think our D tackles have been a huge bright spot. McClellan had some excellent plays on film in this game. Really, really solid. Uh, obviously, Big Dez is getting better every single game, Big Dez. And then I, th- I think, you know, Justice Boone, number 12, is, I think, going to be a really nice player for us. I mean, he's a very smart player. He, he seems to get pressure. He pushes up the field well. He holds things well. So all these young guys I'm mentioning look very different than some of the older guys we have playing, and that's really good. But right now, it's just... It just isn't, it's not a complete defense. We have issues with our strong safety and run support. We have issues with our linebackers. It's really hard to judge a D line there. I think it's unfair to put on the D line what people are putting on them. For sure. I would 100% agree. Actually, we talked about the the biggest if on this defense was that defensive tackle spot. Could you get enough guys playing there? And it seems like we have for the most part. That Big Dez has been fine. McClellan's been fine. Jalen Lee's been fine. You know, they're not necessarily lighting the world on fire. They're not the most dominant part of our team. But th- this was a worry for me, Princely being not the biggest guy to play in. Brenton Cox is not the biggest guy. I mean, he's technically a linebacker, but, you know, as we use him basically along the defensive line, you know, if you're not technically excellent, if you're undersized, and, and Princely had some moments in this game, like you said, where he loses the edge and it costs us, right? Now that's nothing new for us, right? from that spot. But yeah, disappointed. I think if you're going to play those guys, you, they have to win rushing the passer and, and Brendan Cox has a lot, but Princely hasn't. And if he's going to be that undersized and is not going to play the right technique maximally, you know, with high consistency, that's going to put a lot of pressure on other parts of your defense. And we don't have the ability at linebacker to absorb any kind of mistakes on the front end. Okay. Um, anything else you want to note before we move to changes we want to see? I think you have to remember this is year one. I've seen a lot of people drawing some unbelievably fast conclusions about what's happening. And you're happening. the king of fast conclusions. And yeah, right? I think like we said, I'll be the first to admit on this podcast, we tend to be the ones at least that do this frequently, not for a living, but for fun, but somewhat professionally, I suppose. Semi-professionals, I don't know what you call us, but... We'll be quick on the trigger, but you you can't be so quick on the trigger that you have no real data. And that's my whole thing. I was like, I'm gonna I'll I'll take them, I'll report to you on film that was ugly. I didn't like the scheme. Things weren't great. I wouldn't have done it. 
I'll report back on that until eventually I have enough data to say, here's what I think the future holds. But I'm nowhere near that point, and neither can anyone else possibly be anywhere near that point right now, especially because we continue to see their own guys playing really, really well. Devin Moore does everything right on every single play. So if you want to skewer Tony for his bad scheme design, potentially, look at what his young guys are who are being taught only by him and by the staff of Raymond and others. Look what they're doing. They're playing technically excellent football. They're far more right than the veterans on this team that have been poisoned by years of bad coaching. So if I saw young guys making horrible mistakes, this might be a different conversation. But there's a lot of silver linings to what's happening here, and it's just way too early to make any future judgments. So just keep watching what happens in year one. The goal in year one is to progress. We want to see progression on this podcast. We need to see the team get better from week one all the way till the end of the year. Along the way, there's going to be highs and lows and lumps and inconsistency. But if this team is not appreciably better by the end, and if you're not going to get different players on the field, then we'll start to have some questions that we have to ask. If it does get better, then year one will be a success because that means you're setting yourself up for a year two where you have more of your own guys, a bigger recruiting class, et cetera. So that's what I would say is ease off any big hot takes right now. Keep watching, keep collecting data, keep paying attention to what's being put on film. Well said. I would 100% agree with that. Uh, we're four games into this regime, and it's not it, it's not like the house is on fire necessarily. Now, defensively, there's been some bad stuff. But again, we, there's a lot that had to get fixed. So Yeah, and the good news is we played three top 15 teams, which people say. But the bad news is it's a little bit disingenuous because Louisville beat USF 41-3 to last week. Right. That's an inexplicably bad performance, but it's it's year one, so we're going to keep watching. All right. Um, let's talk about – well, changes you'd like to see. I mean, we've already talked about it's time to move on from yeah, some you got of a, the veterans. you got a bench, Dean. I, I mean, you, Bernie can play some because he offers you something sometimes, but I think I'd like to see his snap count go way down. And look, this, this sucks. In football, let me say this, you typically want your seniors to play the most. This is not a sport where you want to be playing your freshman all the time, but I view Florida now – this is like a rebuild in the NFL. And those guys are going to be gone. This is no offense to them. If they were playing well, I'd play them. This isn't like I'm going to bench my my veteran starter who's better because he's leaving next year. That would be ridiculous, and that's not that's not the college spirit. But if these guys aren't giving you what we need, which they're not, it's time to, to put a guy in there and let him see if he can give you something on film. So I think Dean, Bernie, and Trevez, and Trevez is middling at best right now, but he's still giving up. Just easy plays at times sure. when teams want it. I, I can't see why he's still out there. Helm is is meh at corner. He's fine-ish, but I don't know why he'd be losing. I don't know why he'd be getting snaps over guys who I think are looking better. I'd play more over him every day of the week. So why why don't we do it? So I'd like to see us start to move more towards playing to the ceiling. Let's play to the ceiling. Blow the floor out. I don't care anymore. Play only for the ceiling, and that means getting rid of these guys that are tanking you and crushing you, and often, quite frankly. Um, are not necessarily even representing your culture super well in the case of Dean, who seems to just sort of be a rogue missile right now, which is unfortunate. I'd like to see him rein that in, become a good teammate, get better. But I think it's time to make personnel changes pretty significantly on defense and begin begin this culture change for this football team. And if there is a game this weekend, this is a perfect time to roll out almost a whole new starting lineup if you wanted to. Absolutely. This is the time. This is when you do it. It's time to get stuff on data here. All right, special teams. Um Adam Mielek, 0 for 1 from 50 yards. The kick, I think, was partially blocked. That's a tough ask for him anyway. Um, 
so it didn't come through in the biggest scenario, but I think that was a lot to ask. Croshaw only one punt, <laughs> crazily enough, in that game, but great a great punt it was. And the uh, note here, the onside kick. I mean, that might have been one of the best onside kicks collectively as a unit I've ever seen. It was awesome. It was unbelievable. That was a, that's a highlight onside kick if there ever was one, right? I mean, beautiful, exhilarating, exciting. A lot and, of you probably didn't know that you couldn't run an onside kickback, especially if you're a younger fan yeah, because almost was, nobody gets the onside kick anymore. Yeah. But uh, you can't, which is unfortunate. But either way, that was, that was sensational. Uh, it's like he just came out of nowhere and yoked that ball. That was awesome. And off we were. And I'm ready to call it, even if there was a uh, counter strategy in returning kicks, please stop. We can't stop committing penalties, so we have to stop returning kicks. Yeah, it's it's time. Like we said, we, we tried to explain why maybe you would try it. And then we said you should have a quick hook if it's not working because it's very costly. And let's uh, let's bury this thing and put it in the ground. And I'm in the fair catch everything crowd. Everything. Literally everything. Unless the ball's like on the 15-yard line in the air, fair catch it. I don't want to start in the 5 or 9 or 10-yard line. There's been data floating around of how much EV we're losing from this. Uh, there's been enough data now. The experiment's over. Just stop it. On top of that, Florida's not fair catching anything. They take a knee in the end zone, which is like we don't even know the rules right now for our, quote, game changers. That's pretty disheartening because if he happens to take a knee in the one-yard line, we're on the one-yard line. So just raise your hand up in the air and fair catch every single kickoff or let it fly over your head into the end zone because this needs to stop. Well said. Well said. Uh, any coaching decisions that we missed? No, I think we covered uh, everything there. Hopefully you got some value out of that. And again, that's not why this is the nice thing. That's not why we lost this game, right? Thankfully, no. these decisions helped us in a world where we don't go for fourth down that many times. If you think we're closer, we are not. And secondarily, this game was really largely about, you know, where we are as a program, where Tennessee is a program, and we're just not there yet. And defensively is the reason. Offensively, that's Napier's forte. We were great. Defensively, not there. That's the major storyline of this game. All right, final thoughts here, and I'll go first on this. Does, does this effort change your outlook on the season? And for me, it absolutely does. Coming out of the USF game, it felt like we were going to lose more coin flips than we wanted to. But every time we come against these matchups where it felt like we were maybe even, I think I would have been predicting a lot of losses. Now it feels like there's an opportunity ahead to pick a lot of wins because of AR's effort in this game. And if they can get anything cleaned up defensively, this offense could be humming at a level that it's going to be hard for most teams to stop. And if he's going to play like that, I think Florida's going to win most of these games. Assuming, like I said, at least a modicum of improvement from the defensive side. So, you know, I love this effort from the team that they never gave up. They kept pushing offensively. The coaching staff kept pushing. And I thought it was a really great effort all around from the, from like the energy of the team, even though they were making a ton of mistakes, it never was like, okay, we're gonna, we're out of this game, we're gonna quit. Now again, the defense shredded beyond belief, so you can't like feel good about that. But I do think it tilted back up, even though you know the Gators lost. Oh, for sure, it tilts way up, right? The major fear is that AR is is not who we thought he was, and again, you're questioning a significant part of your future. Secondarily, I think it's nice, like. 
you lose the game to Kentucky and you're really frustrated because you beat a very good Utah football team and you think, man, it'd be nice to start 2-0, and then 3-0, and then play Tennessee. And you know you're, you know you're not going to beat Georgia and those teams, but it'd be nice to have maybe like a steal a season. Well, that's gone now, right? It's all gone. Wins are nice. You know, we talked about this. Wins don't matter to me much in, in year one. In fact, if you look at almost all the coaches that passed a three-year test, Allen, their year one is anything but inspiring. It's middling, right? Nick Saban, go look at Nick Saban's year one at Alabama. It takes time. Even if you're the greatest coach of all time, it takes time. So give Napier time before we assess what's happening. In Nick Saban's case, by the end of year two, that was a rock solid football team. Rock solid. We should expect the same for Napier. We're not going to give him excuses into year three and four and five. But in year one, there's a culture change. There's a foundational change. Most of these coaches are going to have a middling effort. He went seven and seven at Louisiana's first year. Uh, something similar in Florida could be in order, but the outlook is definitely more positive now that this offense has put this on film. And now it's time to see how we begin to handle the personnel and, you know, kind of looking towards the future of building this team out to bring in better recruits and to get to where we want to go to, which is not losing to the Tennessees and Kentuckys of the world, unless those teams become top 10 teams. Yeah. And Kentucky's a top 10 team, but I think the well, rest is a, a realistic, yeah. real top 10 team. All right, you want to do the coaching corner here? Let's do it. All right, we have one. There could have been many, but we covered a lot of the Florida ones, so we'll spare you some of the other ones. But this is a good one, Alan. This is a very good one. So Clemson and Wake Forest played a doozy of a game. Wild one. Wild one. They were tied late in the game. Wake Forest is on Clemson's 48-yard line. 48-yard line. There are 39 seconds left. It's a fourth and five. And the score is like in the high 30s, early 40s here. So both teams are scoring a lot. 39 seconds, fourth and five, your Wake Forest on Clemson's 48. What is your decision? They chose to punt. What would you, what would you have done there? Man, this is a, a hard one. Because um, if you don't pick it up, you're probably losing the game. And you're tied, presumably, right? Yeah, they're tied. I, fourth and five, it that that's a tough one that that moves you just beyond if it's fourth and two I, i'm probably going for it what's your thought there yeah this is really hard because even if you get the fourth and five it doesn't mean you get to kick the field goal right so it's it's one thing if it's like if i know i make this play i'm gonna have a lead on them but you're not i like the aggression in general of course i wasn't watching the game so i'm gonna answer this question with what i would do in real life if i felt like by this stage of the game i had a play that had like a 75 80 chance of winning of course I'm running it. And I think that's why you have to look at it. You can't look at it as like, oh, what if I don't get it? You got to look at the math. If you punt and you go to overtime, what are your odds of winning statistically? You know, it's like, let's say it's 50%. I'm just going to make a number up. Anything that you get is appreciably better than 50%. You have to go with. And it's not just looking at the math of like overall, what happens when teams go for it on fourth and five? Because you're the coach, you're in the game. You know what's going on. You know what they've put on tape on defense. You've seen a million plays already. If you have something you like and there's tendencies that are there and you've saved a play and you can get it and it's 65, 60% even, that's your best chance of winning this game. You got to do it. Of course, I don't know that information, but that's how I'd view it. Without knowing that, I could make the decision either way, depending on what my team is doing and what they're doing on defense. In this case, you know, I'm not going to say that's wrong or that's right, but hopefully that's kind of the insight on what I think and I hope they were thinking in that situation. Um, Sam Hartman was on fire in that game. It was. So I'm sure it was hard for them to sit that down. And in the first overtime, both Clemson and Wake Forest scored. So, you know, that was a 
It was a tight, crazy game. Could have gone either way. Uh, and always you can look at what your opponent hopes you do. That's the great thing, right? Go back to that rule. What would Dabo Sweeney have hoped Wake Forest did there? Hmm. And I would have had to have watched that game to know. But whatever he hoped to do, do the opposite. And I don't know what the answer is to that question because I didn't see the game. But there you go. Uh, let's, read, let's read some patrons here. Yeah. Let's thank some some donors throughout the years. All right. First one, just David. And let's go, David. Matt Bordas, AJ Singh, Jack Linati, Wilbert Van Cool. That's a great name. Jimmy Coke, Scott Greenberg, Daniel Rychek, Cameron Todd, Bob Beatty, the one and only JT. There he is, the most positive fan ever who told you and I, Alan, on game day that we had no faith in Florida and that we were wrong. They were traitors. Yep. Not sure how that <laughs> I don't works. Know. <laughs> I don't know what he is now for being, you know, a delusional. There you know. go. Leo Bruner, Matt, Matthew Cox, Zach F., Amar Vady, Shannon Bradley, Barry Averett, Kevin Trepanier, Wade Bayless, Wayne Patterson. What's up, dude? Michael Viramontes, Kyle Chapin, Stephen Tosquez, Lakeside Gator, Josh Heflin, Ryan Delk, Thomas Burgess, Sean Steers, Robert Land. Here we got G. Diaz, Guillermo Diaz. Oh, Guillermo Diaz, there he is. Chacon Diaz and <laughs> D. Virgilio, one of the founding members. Let's go, let's go, G. <laughs> Adam Walters, Andrew Rutledge, Cameron White, Jamie Wagner, Brandon A. Blake. Mark Peden, Stephen Ward, Daniel Welch, Bill Hood. Let's go, Bill. And McQuinn, Edwin Hernandez Gunn. Connor Sigmeister, Rack2411, Richie Legler, Mark Kamerlowski, Chimerlowski, Chimilarski. Chimilarski. That's oh. a good one. I don't know. Write to me when I butchered that. Again, I'm D. Virgilio. I get it. Matt Bryant, John Arebi, Andrew Mosley, and Brandon Hensley. And also, it should be mentioned that Megan Fowler, now known as Megan Gibson, had a level up that uh, got deleted from this sheet early. But there you are, Megan. In case you thought I missed you, I didn't miss you. She's kicking it up there in Nashville. Uh, good work. All right. Games we picked to recap, Alan. Week four slate. You beat me on this one. You won eight and four. I went seven and five. So now you're a healthy 32 and 24 in the season. I'm 31 and 25. So we're close, both doing, close, both close. doing pretty well here. Uh, let's see. We had West Virginia favored by three over Virginia Tech. And West Virginia smokes Vautech 33-10. Yeah, it's a good win for West Virginia. Virginia Tech, I'm still not sure where, where they are, are at as a program. Yeah, ever since Frank Beamer left, right? They haven't quite found their footing. Uh, number 17, Baylor, playing quite the the weird schedule as, a, as a, again, dark horse favorite. They went on the road to your clones. Clones are favored by two and a half. You and I both took Baylor, and Baylor took care of business 31-24 in a shootout. Yeah, this is a good game. Um, Baylor, they have another good one this week coming up. Um, but, yeah, they're a solid team. Um, I think Iowa State is pretty solid too, just a little less flashy. Yeah, absolutely. Number 22, Texas. Oh, Texas. Wow. I'm glad I followed the rule here. I just followed you because you knew I couldn't get it right otherwise. Texas <laughs> oh, Tech takes care of business and beats Texas 37-34. Texas was winning this game fairly handily, and they let Tech come back and win. There's a bunch of fun field-storming videos from the Texas Tech fans. This is great for them. Someone pointed out that this might be the last time Texas plays there in a long time. Very they, true. When they moved to could SEC, be could be a long, just, long time. Their last time hosting, they take them down. It's got to be and they're gonna for them. they're gonna get to carry that forever, forever in that state when they talk about those games. So loved it. Uh, Notre Dame at North Carolina. B Red's got to go heels. Note here, unfortunately for the heels, who so you and I both picked straight up. Notre Dame all of a sudden scores forty five points. I guess anybody can score on North Carolina. Yeah, and North Carolina scores 32, which is like a, a great output against Notre Dame. So clearly North Carolina has questions about their defensive coordinator. 
Uh, number 15, Oregon, favored by seven on the road against the Cougs. The Cougs almost get this done. They're super feisty this year, but Oregon wins a tight one, 44-41. Yeah, I, I thought they would keep this close, and they did. Um, they're spunky. Same with Oregon State, which we'll get to in a minute. Utah goes on the road as 14.5-point favorites at Arizona State, which we said felt like free money and wins easily 34-13. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Utah solid, Arizona State. What are, what is the opposite of solid? They're liquid? Yes. They're porous? I don't know. They're weak? They're gaseous? <laughs> they're gaseous. Uh, Maryland, go Terps, baby. Go Terps. I doubted them. You doubted them. They were right there with Michigan until the end. They go down 34-27. Yeah, Michigan hadn't really played anybody. I mean, not that Maryland is a juggernaut, but it calls into a question a lot of, like, Michigan stuff. Now, it could be just a one-off that they ramped up in competition. They didn't play well, but interesting. We'll keep an eye on that. Yeah, I think that Michigan fans are worried. The recruiting seems to be down. Last year maybe is a little bit lucky. We'll see. Wisconsin on the road against Ohio State. Ohio State looked like the team many people, including myself, thought they would be. This game was over at the end of the first quarter. They yeah. wound up winning 52-21. I took Wisconsin this game, and I regret it immediately. Yeah, but in this next one, you made the right decision. Yeah, Kansas good. State. A team a lot of people liked took a surprising loss the week before and then goes to Oklahoma and gets the dub. I was fairly confident about this 41-34 in a, in a very entertaining game. Yeah, for sure. I thought, I mean, Oklahoma getting 13, I felt very confident taking K-State there. I thought they'd rebound. They, they play Oklahoma really well Yeah, every year. They do. They've won three of the last four meetings against Oklahoma. And, of course, if you've been not paying attention to what's going on out West, Adrian Martinez, the former Nebraska quarterback, who right. lost a bunch of close games to Oklahoma, gets a win here. All right, number 10, Arkansas, on the road against A&M. A&M takes care of business here. It was a two-and-a-half-point line. So we wind up getting a little backdoor loss win. They stoink it off the uprights to win the game. Soul-crushing. Two... Games end in the same way where the football basically bounces off the top of the upright, which I've never seen it happen twice this weekend, right? Unreal, right? I mean, I don't know. AM is crazy. I mean, one of their touchdowns was like, was it like a fumble which somebody handed to somebody else, right? I, I still don't think they can score at any kind of rate. So if you're going to be able to put points on them, they're going to lose. But they were able to hold this one close, got a defensive touchdown. And this has got to be painful for Arkansas because it was right there for him. Yeah, DJ Durkin is doing work with that defense there at AM. Uh, good stuff is happening for them. The offense is MIA. Not good. All right, number seven, USC, six and a half point favorites over Oregon State. Oregon State, we said, was really feisty. We both took them with those points. We were correct, but Lincoln Riley remains undefeated, a 17 14 win on the road. Yeah, they escaped this game, which I, I don't think a Clay Helton team would have escaped. Uh, Oregon State, they're tough. I mean, they're going to give everybody problems. Uh, USC, I think they're good this year. Are they the seventh best team in the country? I don't know, but who is at this point? I mean, is Clemson number five? Probably not. So I think USC is definitely on the way up, but they're not all the way there. They're not all the way there for sure. No, definitely not. But a great year one for Lincoln Riley, of course, not exactly playing the competition that maybe some other people are playing, but... Gets a win in a low-scoring game, which I think if you're an offensive coach, you relish those. All right, Clemson, as we talked about, went on the road to Wake Forest. They were seven-and-a-half-point favorites. You and I both took them Wake Forest in overtime. Succumbs to them 51-45, but they get the losing cover. News around the leagues, though. Minnesota crushes Michigan State. A lot of people, including myself, had faded Michigan State before the year. 
felt like they just weren't going to repeat what happened last year. And so far, that's looking possible. Yeah. Middle Tennessee State, though. Hold on, but that that mega contract they gave Mel Tucker well, right, for no the, reason. Yes, was way too early. Like, what did he done? Like we yeah. said, he hadn't passed a three-year test. They should have talked to us. Man. Middle Tennessee destroyed Miami. This was not like they got lucky or it was fluky. They just consistently beat them from the first whistle to the last whistle. And now for all of those Miami fans that were so full of themselves in the offseason, so vibing with the crystal ball era and all the recruiting and paying everyone, I wonder how they're feeling now. I mean, it's okay to lose to Texas A&M, certainly. Oh, of course, on the road? Yeah, 100%. This was, I don't know, inexplicable. I mean, MTSU is not like a fantastic program. They were beating them over the top over and over and over again. Huge play after huge play. Yeah. Crazy. Absolutely. Jeff Collins, a guy who's a very good defensive coordinator, is fired from Georgia Tech and is now on the market. I'm sure he will get picked up somewhere as a DC in the very near future. Yeah, I mean, people are asking, you know, is he could Florida hire him to be on the staff as an analyst? I, I mean, I don't think they would do that, but um he'll be good somewhere, I think. I, I thought he would do well at tech. I thought it was a decent hire, but obviously did not work out yeah and that's you gotta you gotta hire someone and see what they can do right if you knew how somebody was going to do in the job then you'd be you know a prophet and not an ad all right uh daytona steve another loss this week he had florida tennessee he had tennessee first of all which again daytona we got to sit down and have a talk with you how could you possibly pick tennessee (laughs) to cover versus your own school that's the most embarrassing thing ever you deserve to lose i'm glad you lost uh you called it little peyton parlay Again, Little Peyton is not a Tennessee fan. He's a Florida fan. So Little Peyton gets his revenge. Daytona Steve goes down. We'll see what he's got this week with his hurricane parlay coming up in just a bit. All right, SEC roundup, Alan. Yeah, LSU beats New Mexico 38-0. Nothing cool. to see there. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think Brian Kelly's team is going to get better. Again, I'm going to keep saying it. He's a good football coach. UGA beats Kent State only 39-22. This game was, this game was uh, contested, if you will. I don't know who saw that coming. I certainly didn't. No. Um, I'm not sure what happened there. I, yeah, I didn't watch one second of it, obviously, but it was somewhat close for a while. Vandy, not the best team in the world, yet they lose to Alabama 55-3. to now Clark Lee's not there, but he'll, he'll, he'll get them there. <laughs> and again, you have to, like, in a world where Bama beats Texas on the road and they look terrible, Bama's just so consistent. It's, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, if if you're inferior to them, they really just beat you like a drum. All right, Kentucky only beats Northern Illinois 31-23 again. We're not Kentucky believers. They not at all. Vandy just beat Northern Illinois the week before. Yeah, on the road at Northern Illinois. So this Kentucky team is a fraud in every sense of the word, and I can't wait till they start losing because Kentucky fans are they're starting to bother me. It's like they bother me in basketball. They're starting to get that way in football, and I don't like it one bit. Ole Miss. Doesn't really put away Tulsa, but they they win 35-27. In case you don't know, Rich Rod, the Rich Rodriguez, who used to be a prominent, high-profile coach, is at Tulsa. And he's got them rolling over yeah. there. He almost almost took down Lane Kiffin. That would have been disappointing for them. All right, Auburn in one of the weirder games I've ever seen, even though I didn't watch it, watching the highlights. They win 17-14 overtime. I mean, Missouri misses a chip shot at the end to win. And then they have someone running in. If you haven't seen it, go look at it. Running in for a score, and he just drops the ball. Crazy. So uh, 
Brian Harson gets a reprieve, lasts another week at Auburn. This is one of those games, if I'm an Auburn fan, I, I was not rooting for a win. I would not have been rooting for a win. It's like, this is going to have to be done eventually. Let's just do it now. <laughs> I mean, the, ugh, both those schools right now, both those programs are not in good shape. Mississippi State beats Bowling Green 45-15, and South Carolina over Charlotte 56-20. Yeah, so most SEC teams still not playing anybody yet. Certainly Florida's played by far the hardest schedule in the SEC, the second hardest schedule in the entire country if you're looking at the analytics. So a very different experience. But this week, unless the hurricane wipes us out, Alan, we might have a very different experience. All right, Eastern Washington, the Eagles are actually the Gators' next opponent. Again, we're not going to spend too much time here. They're not an opponent that's going to challenge Florida in any significant ways. At Uh, least hopefully not. Hopefully not. And (laughs) most likely it seems like this game might – I don't want to say most likely. Who knows? It's Monday afternoon. We don't know. A big possibility this game is not played. So yeah. we'll see. Which which sucks for Eastern Washington. Uh, I think Indeed. there's some level of money they get in the event of a cancellation. But, I mean, Scott can correct us here. But I don't, I don't know. But either way, you, you want this game. You need this game for your program. You count on it. So they certainly would want to make it happen if they could. This game's at noon. There's no line on it. The, um, we could see... Uh, they went ten and three in twenty twenty one, but Oregon beat them seventy to fourteen this year. They they play in a red field. That's what they're known for. They're the yeah. only team in the world that plays in a red field of any kind for football. Cooper Cup went there. That's a big deal. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I remember hearing about him. I actually have a decent amount of friends from Eastern Washington, which is weird. And, and up there, they you ask them where they go to school, they say Eastern, and you're like Eastern what? Like Eastern Washington? <laughs> that's like don't you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, generally they're they're a decent FCS school. Yeah, they make the playoffs every year, yeah. losing the first round kind of deal. They're very competent for their level for sure, but yes. athletically, just way behind uh, a team like Florida. But anything like, anything is possible. FCS schools have beaten. Oh, for sure, FCS for sure. Schools. This doesn't seem like this version of a. No, we should be okay. Team. Okay, uh, their head coach Aaron Best is in his sixth year. Uh, he's a former player there. He's been a coach there since two thousand in some capacity. Uh, they have no like ranked players, of course. Um, if you care about their coaching staff, Jim Chapin, OC, Jeff Coop, their DC. Their quarterback is named Gunner Talkington. That's really what we're going to the breakdown for, was yeah. to get to that. Gunner Talkington. If that's not one of the better quarterback names you've heard, then you need to tell me what quarterback names you have heard. That's amazing. They have various wide receivers and running backs who you may or may not want to know. Well, number one... Freddie Roberson is very notable uh, for sure in the FCS. No, for sure. Like if you pull up any FCS breakdown, like that's the guy we got to stop Freddie Roberson. Um, anyway, they're a high, a high octane passing attack in the FCS. That's kind of how you beat them. Their defense is largely a sieve, but uh, if this game happens, scouting report is that doesn't matter. It's basically like rubbing against your scout team, but not as good. You want to make sure you run your stuff. You want to make sure you execute cleanly. You want to make sure that you don't blow anything. That's kind of the goal, right? Play clean ball against an inferior opponent and impose your will upon them. Yeah, I think that's what we both like to see. Um, and see a, if this game is played, I, I would love to see all of the young guys play significant minutes. And if that means the score is slightly closer than it would have been otherwise, that's fine. If If people are freaking out about that and they would need to – calm way down but i would love to see these guys even if they make a lot of mistakes i'd love to see them get 
the majority of the snaps. In this oh, yeah, especially because, I mean, our other guys are making lots of mistakes True. anyway, True. so let's make that happen. Um, do you want to do a prediction, or, or what do you think? Yeah, might as well. I mean, if the game happens, we'll make a prediction. I think we just skip the keys to the game because we're going to sure. both say that it's a matter of style for this one. We want to see progression. You want to see your coach use this week as a, hey, focus and play clean and put good stuff on film. You don't want to see them come out sloppily and treat it like a bunch of, you know, like a, like a scrimmage. Like this is a chance for you to play clean and perfect. For sure, which is would be their correct default probably. I'm not, not the Florida players, but just athletes in general. It's a nooner. There's yes. not going to be a lot of energy exactly. in the stadium. And not, this is where yeah. Nick Saban excels. He gets his, his guys to play perfect football, clean, solid, strong. And you know Napier is cut from that same cloth. So it's a good example for Napier, I think, to see who his players or who of his players are going to respond to what he wants them to do versus the ones who are going to you know kind of just dog it and show up and no big deal. All right, prediction then. I guess I'll go first. If the game happens, uh, Florida's defense, of course, I think is, is, is you know safe to give up some points here in this game. Uh, they shouldn't probably get more than 10 to 13, but until proven otherwise, I'm going to go on the higher end of this number and say 13, and I'm going to say that Florida, you know, should be somewhere around 50. So that feels safe, could be much higher. I'm not sure what we're going to do with playing AR and other stuff. I think you're probably going to see Kitna in this game, Miller if he's healthy, perhaps even our boy Kyle Engel towards the end, but I'm going to go 50 to 13. Yeah, the only reason I would think that we might not score if we were going to play like Jack Miller in this game correct? to get him some reps, I think it would be higher. But I was going to go in the high 40s. I'm going to go 48 to 20. Nice. 20. I like it. There yeah, you go. I think, yeah. That's respecting our defense. At the you know, Gunnar Talkington, maybe. Gunnar's going to be gunning. Put some, some points here. That maybe, especially if they're playing, if we're playing four-string guys late in the game, there might be some garbage time stuff here. Yeah, I think you're right. All right. It is time for the HelloFresh live read. One of my favorite times of the week. With HelloFresh, of course, you get farm fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can simply skip that grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make your home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's three good things. That's also why it's America's number one meal kit. Uh, Everyday Amber May, who is our resident dietitian, who is going to be giving another review since HelloFresh is kind enough to send us more goodies. Hello. Uh, We'll be reporting back very soon as she receives those next week. So we'll have a fresh update from her. But in the meantime, if you want to try these meals for yourself, you can get 65% off from HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash GNFP65 and use the code GNFP65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Okay. As opposed to the last couple weeks, there's a ton of fun games this weekend. Which could be great because if we're stuck at home in a hurricane with lots of rain, nothing better than watching college football. There you go. All right. Friday night, number 15, Washington favored by three and a half at UCLA. These lines are weird to me. Chip Kelly is still there at UCLA. You wouldn't necessarily know it, but uh, Washington is is vibing right now. Are they good on the road? What's UCLA going to give you? Washington's got more talent. The Pac-12 is is fun this year, I think. I Alan. agree. It's a fun league this year. I mean, they're losing teams, but this is probably like this is like a peak Pac-12 year, I think, in terms of competitiveness and parity. So, three and a half is close, but. Not close enough. I'm going to take Washington. I'll join you there. I, I don't feel good about that. I was very tempted to take UCLA. Yeah, I don't feel great either, but I don't I really know what I'm doing with that Pac-12 matchup on the road there. Those road teams don't fare well in the Pac-12, it seems. All right. Number four, Michigan. Minus 10.5 at Iowa. A place they have not won 
since like 2005 or I'm something. Glad you like mentioned that because I'm taking Iowa because Iowa can't score more than three points, but I don't know that Michigan can either at Iowa. So maybe like a 13 3 line there and Iowa gets the backdoor cover. I'm going to go with it. Yeah, I'm going to join you there for sure. Um, Iowa feels like <laughs> they're playing like caveman ball, but I, I don't know. Maybe just enough to be inside this number. All right. West Virginia at your favorite program, Texas. Texas favored by nine. I'm just feeling really good, obviously, that I have a win with Texas already. Uh Like, I picked correctly. West Virginia comes off a really good win. Texas is asking questions of themselves with a really difficult loss. If Quinn Ewers are playing, I'd pick Texas every single day of the week. But to my knowledge, Allen, he's not. So, I'm going to take West Virginia. Well, let's be together on this. I mean, I, I don't. I don't like this West Virginia team a ton, but I don't like this Texas team at all either. So Nine points is a lot for Texas to get at this stage, I feel. I agree. All right, number 18, Oklahoma, favored by 6.5 at TCU. 6.5 is not 7, and that's my rationale for taking Oklahoma. Yeah, I think Oklahoma bounces back here. Um, this TCU team is fun. I, I would not be surprised at all if they cover this number, though. So I, I, don't, I don't love it, but... I'll I'll join you there. All right, LSU favored by eight at Auburn. How you feeling? This is not a game I would ever bet. No, this is bizarre. No, I, I believe in Brian Kelly. I'm going to keep saying it. I believe it's a cultural mismatch, and I also believe in Brian Kelly. Which one of those things wins out? I don't really know. It's kind of a weird dude in a weird place, but I know he's a lot better than Brian Harson, and he has more talent. But he's on the road, and he's getting eight points. But Auburn got smoked by Penn State. How can you? Po- I cannot possibly pick them. So I'm gonna have to go with LSU. Uh, I hate that we're going in lockstep here, but um, I, I don't know. How could you pick Auburn? I, I don't know. I don't think you can. I, but again, I would never no. ever Ooh, put no. money on this game. Oop, 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 oop. I didn't even bet, and I'm still saying that out loud. Exactly okay. right. Yeah, that's great. All right, Oregon State at number twelve, Utah. Utah favored by ten and a half. Who do you like here? <sighs> The Beavs? You like the Beavs? That's a big line. It's tough to play in Utah, though. Mm-hmm. Teams struggle there, but that's a big line. I mean, I believe in Utah. I like what they put on film. They've been rolling people since they played us. If they roll Oregon State, I think people are going to really believe in them. Ten and a half, though. Man, that, that's a Oregon State's feisty, Allen. They're really feisty. I'm going to go Oregon State here. Me too. I this If this number was smaller, if it was under 10, I would take Utah. But I think they get inside that. I think they they lose by 10 or so. A gritty team. All right. I'll, I put this in here. This is great, though, for yeah. every possible reason. Iowa State, favored by three and a half. At the undefeated Kansas State Jay- Jayhawks, who are somehow not ranked, but who are 4-0. Which is unreal. And they've looked good. They look good. They do look good. This is a whole different challenge for them facing uh-huh. a very competent Iowa State team. But I mean, come on. How many times do I get to pick Kansas for anything? I have to pick Kansas. For sure. I I think they win this game. They're that riding would be high right now. Huge. Huge if they beat an accomplished program like Iowa State at this stage. But they can. I mean, they're they're playing good football. All right. Number twenty two Wake Forest at number twenty two twenty three. The Florida State Seminoles, who rolled Boston College last week. Smoked them. They're looking competent all of a sudden. Florida State's favored by seven. 
It's amazing how you can survive a game against LSU in just the most bizarre way. They should have won that game, but you know, survive the end. And then now they're really they're really rolling. And look, Mike Norvell, we talked about it. He was really good at Memphis. A lot of people liked him. Hasn't been a great fit there. Things have been weird. They've not played anybody this top. But this Wake Forest team is obviously solid. Very solid. The fact that Florida State's favored by seven is surprising to me. Also, this game, very unlikely to be played. Seems like the odds are small as well. Regardless, at least not right now. But I'm going to pick it right now. And I'm going to I'm gonna take Wake Forest because I, I cannot trust Florida State. Until For sure. Prove their trust. I think they're going to have a really hard time with that slow mesh. And this is tough because if Wake Forest wasn't coming off the Clemson game, where I feel like they probably expended a lot of physical and emotional energy, I'd feel better about it. But I definitely like Wake in that game. All right. And I don't think they're the 17th best team in the country, but number 17, Texas A&M at Mississippi State, who's favored by three. Oh, man. This is tough. I mean, I think A&M's defense is, is filthy. And I think that Mississippi State is going to struggle with them. But Mississippi State's defense is also good in its own right. Yeah. And, I mean, I have no idea with this. It, it's going to be really close. And for that reason alone, I feel like if, it's, if I think it's a close game, i got to take points. So I'm going to take A&M, who's the higher-ranked team, quote-unquote, is more talented than them. But they're also on the road. But I'm going to take them. I'm going to take Mississippi State. I, I just don't think that A&M is going to be able to score enough. I mean, sure, that's a great thought because they can't. <laughs> All right. Number 10, NC State. Man, these rankings are crazy right now. NC State. Who's a good team, but this will all shake out. It's fine. I don't like to get riled up. It's early. It's early. Don't worry. All right. Number 10 in NC State at number five, Clemson, who's favored by six and a half. <sighs> Which team do you believe in? I less? mean, six and a half. Uh, NC, I don't believe in NC State at all. Clemson all of a sudden has a huge offensive output and can't play defense which is troubling. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what I'm getting from them. And mm, is this game going to really be a one score game at Clemson? Clemson's way more talented. I'm going to go with Clemson. Me too. I, I think they win here. And I, I think NC state could definitely upset them. I would not be shocked at that at all. I mean, they're NC state. They're fine. They're good. But yeah. there you go. Yeah, I mean, Clemson loses this game. If I'm a Clemson fan and I lose this game, then I'm in a bad place. I'm yeah. not in a great place right now as a Clemson fan because things have just not been right. But I don't want to lose to an NC State team who's not in my hemisphere talent-wise. All right, number seven, Kentucky. Absurd, just absurd, sickening. <laughs> At number 14, Ole Miss, who hasn't played great yet, but Ole Miss is favored by six. So Kentucky at least has played a competent team in Florida. Competence being kind, but competitive with other teams that are at least good. Old Miss has played no one, survived Tulsa. They got way ahead of Tulsa, and I think perhaps we're already thinking about this Kentucky game. This is a big, big game there. Sort of like the, if you like F1 racing, this is like the middle of the table competing with each other here. Who's going to, who in the midfield is going to wind up doing well? I mean, Old Miss is not of a good defense, which is kind of like the kicker. Because you can count on them to score. I think they're going to score on Kentucky for sure. Kentucky plays more of that static back end defense. I think Ole Miss will score. Six points is a lot. A lot. But I don't believe in Kentucky. I don't believe in them at all. And therefore, I have to take Ole Miss. Yeah, this is an anti-Kentucky pick. And I'll, I'll jump on the Rebels here. Uh, I Ole Miss wouldn't surprise me if they won by 20. If yeah. they get going, if they 
if they start to shred that Kentucky. Oh, if they defense, get ahead of Kentucky, it's literally over. That's yeah. the thing with that Kentucky team is they're gonna get they're gonna get smoked. All right, another fun one here. Number nine, Oklahoma State, and number sixteen, Baylor, who's favored by two and a half. We haven't talked a lot of Oklahoma State. What do you think here? I love Mike Gundy pretty much all the time. And I'm therefore picking the mullet. Uh, I'll stay with Baylor here. I've been riding them a little bit. They they had that nice win against Iowa State last week. I think they keep it going. Yeah, I mean, I think Baylor is the smart money pick here, only giving up two and a half at home. But Oklahoma State's that team every year that just wins 10 games. You don't pay attention to them. They almost made the playoff last year. We talked about For this. sure. No, I th- think they're this silent. Is this is a huge game. Look, Baylor's played a heck of a schedule to start this year. Very entertaining stuff. This is a game I definitely want to see without a doubt. All right, I guess. As, as I do want to see this one. But. Yeah. Number two, Alabama, favored by 16.5 at number 20, Arkansas. Arkansas has played close with basically everyone. They've played a great schedule so far. They have, and they've played close with teams they shouldn't play close with, like their former coach, Petrino. Bama at 16.5, though, this feels like this feels like value. To yeah. Me. This just feels like value. Arkansas, are they really equipped to deal with Bama? I don't think so. Not feeling that per se, uh, but then again, you know Pittman is a good line of scrimmage coach. He's got a, he's got he, they're good at the front, and that's what makes them that's what makes them competitive in all these football games. You can't push them around. I just I, Bama always burns me on these like fifteen to nineteen point favorites. It's like oh, of course they're going to win by more. The question here for me is whether or not Arkansas slides in at the end under this line which would be typical for Bama, but I can't predict that. So I'm going to go Bama. I'm going to go Bama as well. I the, I don't know how to feel about this Arkansas team. I like them a lot. They're good. They're a really good team, and they're, they're really up and down, though. At home, man, they're ready for this. I, there's a good chance they, they keep this close, and there's a chance they win this game, which now I'm talking myself to switching my pick to Arkansas, but... It, it, when you when you go against Bama, you almost always regret it, I feel like. That's kind of the general thought. And, yes, like you said, Arkansas could definitely win this game. It wouldn't even surprise me. That's what's so weird about the 16.5-point line. But we're going to find out. I believe in this Bama team. I think that Texas week was a total anomaly. I think this team is is going to be an absolute juggernaut by the end. And if, if this result is not what I think it is, I'm going to adjust my opinion. That's for sure. All right, Daytona Steve coming in like a hurricane with the hurricane parlay. He's got Michigan favored by 10 and a half. Daytona, Steve. Right, right. I can't even read one, Allen, before he's already at odds with us. Daytona, come on, man. You have yet to pull this off when you're at odds with Allen and I so significantly. He's got Michigan favored over Iowa. He has Utah with the money line. Oh, I like that. Versus Oregon State. So just straight up win. Wake Forest favored by... Okay, okay. I like this. Seven points at Florida State. We like that one. LSU money line at Auburn. Okay, we. you and I said we would never bet that game. Money line feels better. I don't think I would Only do it Only a sicko way. like Daytona I still, Steve would I bet still that. wouldn't do it. And I love this pick. Georgia at Missouri is really nice. You're getting 10 to 1 odds on this parlay. Uh, this feels this feels risky for 10 to 1 odds. I don't know. We're going to see if he can win one, though. It's been it's been many moons as he's won one. Uh, hopefully he gets one. If here. you're a All sicko right. like Daytona Steve, you would bet this. Otherwise, yeah. I would stay away from it. Yeah, you'd bet it for sure. All right. Uh, any other items, Alan, from you? I don't think so. Uh, I don't know this what this means just circling back around to the beginning again that where Florida is, but that I feel pretty good about the team coming off a loss and to Tennessee, which normally feels like just would be a stomach punch game. But the way that game unfolded, 
yeah, kind of feeling feeling a little frisky about the team. And if they can clean some stuff up, I, I don't know. I think it should be a really interesting, and I'll, I'll use the word fascinating, into the season. Yeah, I think for me, I'm, I'm, I'm right. We 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 said we there were some big questions that had to be answered and asked of this offense, and we got a positive data point, and that that's what I feel like. It'd be a shame to lose this game. A for the community of Gainesville and the people that depend on the economy here, and just a fun, entertaining sporting event. These are games where people could take their families to. A lot of people go to these games, obviously from out of town. It's kind of more inexpensive, so it'd suck to lose this game. But in the football sense. It would be nice for Florida to get a game where they could go out and really beat somebody because, Allen, we haven't had that every single game. Think about this. Every single game has come right down basically to the end. It's been emotional. It's been difficult. It's been high. It's been low. So to get a game where you can go out there and roll somebody oftentimes is actually very confidence building. So this would be a loss for Florida, I think, in that regard. But all in all, I love, like we said, I love the first seasons of new coaches because it is that show that you want to see with some familiarity and a lot of stuff you don't know. And each week you're watching to see what's going to happen because you don't know what's going to happen yet because you haven't really figured out who the characters are. That's where we still are in this storyline. I think it's prudent to remember that and to enjoy watching this stuff unfold and be frustrated when things occur that obviously shouldn't occur. But we'll see if we get one more data point this weekend for Florida football. If not, be safe out there depending where you are with the hurricane. I know if you're a lifelong Floridian like Alan and I, it's very easy to sort of just look at hurricanes as a overhyped event, but I know for sure if it hits where you are and you're in the direct line of path, it's, it's anything but that. So we'll hope, pray for the best result. Uh, obviously wish you guys a great and wonderful week and weekend, and we'll be back with you as always next Monday where we bring you either coverage on Florida's game or coverage on their upcoming game against Missouri. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.